we're not making money off of this, so who cares? Enjoy your free podcast, people. I'll probably cut that out. <laughs> or put that <laughs> at the very pulled, beginning. Yeah, you just pulled a fucking, uh, what's his name? Uh, Lonesome Roads. Hey, girl. You're listening to the Cinephilia Podcast. With your hosts, Michael Gaddy and Trevor Macid. Mmm, Cinephilia. Well, we love movies so much, it should be illegal. Hello and welcome to Cinephilia, the podcast episode number 11. I'm Michael Gaddy. I'm Trevor. Listen. <laughs> I thought about the uh, fact that I always say my last name and we joke about that and I was like, well, you tend to call me just Gaddy in the podcast, so it makes sense. Yeah, that's your name. I don't think I've ever called you Mike or Michael, and I don't think I ever will. It's always weird when anybody calls me Mike or Michael. Yeah. Even my girlfriend. I mean, she doesn't call me Gaddy. I was going to say, she doesn't call me Gaddy. <laughs> she doesn't really call me much of anything. But, oh, uh, shit. Yeah. That is, it's kind of with my parents. My dad never called my mom Chris. Oh. He was, he was always some pet name, so. Yeah, but that's different. Do you have, uh, does Valerie call you pet names? Um, Am I allowed to say her name? Well, do you want i'll I'll put the bleep in there, okay, just, there you go. <laughs> from the last episode uh so how you doing um i always I'm, say that so condescendingly too. i know how you doing how you doing how you doing like you care um yeah man i'm good i'm good that's good that's good how are you, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um i'm i'm I've, I've been better because I had to work until 3 a.m. last night and I didn't get to sleep until 5. Damn, like I explained Life of a porn before. star, it's hard. <laughs> I, God, I wish. No, uh, that'd be weird. Uh, but, yeah, speaking of our last episode, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, please. I um, only have a couple things. Uh, I got hung up on the title and I sent you one of the alternate titles from uh, Finland, but we'll get to that. So I looked up other ones. In Argentina, it's In the Heat of the Guns. In Brazil, it's Cold Blood. It's a pretty good title, but I think something else already has that. In Chechia, is that how you say it? Yeah, Chechia. Uh, it's called Kidnappers. Okay. <laughs> Very simple and to the point. In Italy, it's The Ways of Violence. It's a pretty decent That's title. Good. I like that one. Uh, in Hungary, it's Mounds Bastards. Like the candy bar Mounds Bastards. I don't get like it. There's a com- I don't either. Uh, but the Finland one uh, is translated to On the Road to Destruction. I think that's probably my favorite one. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, so better titles. I also have uh, this article I found because I mentioned that I feel like it's semi-inspired by Quentin Tarantino uh, in Pulp Fiction. And so I found an article of... I just Google searched movies inspired by Pulp Fiction and I'm just stalling for time now while this loads because it seems I, I don't have access to your Wi-Fi. That's so unfortunate. It's, yeah. Uh, it's still loading. So there are some movies, a lot of movies in here I don't even recognize, like Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. No idea what that is. American Strays from 96 and it, in the uh, the Way of the Gun. I almost said In the Way of the Gun. The Way of the Gun is on that list. Um, I have my glasses on, but I don't know if you want to read what they say about the movie. Sure. As great as Pulp is, the majority of the films that tried to emulate it ain't even the same ballpark. It ain't the same league. They ain't even the same fucking sport. Some get closer, though, as in this beautiful crass, parentheses, for the first half at least, Christopher McQuarrie crime film. Sure, the way of the gun is hyper-violent and has a coterie of vulgar, bad people making up its cast of characters. It's talky and very much quote-unquote written, but it's not so much of a knockoff of the QT style 
as that it shares a similar sensibility for dialogue and genre subversions. It's even fair to say that Macquarie was ahead of Tarantino here in terms of heavily aping spaghetti western tropes and style. Parentheses, Kill Bill came out three years later. It's a twisty 70s throwback tale of two lowlifes, Benicio del Toro and a gravelly voice, Ryan Philippe, <laughs> who kidnap a surrogate mother to a rich couple in hopes of a big score. Things spiral out of control on the way to a brutal gunfight in a dusty old Mexican town. The characterizations and dialogue really sing, especially coming from the two leads and James Caan as a veteran cleaner of sorts who puts on an acting clinic in ultimate grizzled old man badassery. There's a lot of memorable moments, acting choices, and sequences. The hilarious, vulgar opening scene sets the tone and establishes these quote-unquote heroes. Del Toro slapping a prostitute in the ass before a gunfight and Philippe, right? Philippe? Mm-hmm. Philippe unwittingly leaping into a pile of broken glass. Parentheses. God damn it anyway. <laughs> Until it all comes way and more in the final act. The success of Pulp Fiction allowed for the existence of The Way of the Gun, but perhaps unusually for this list, its successes and failures feel mostly its own. B minus. All right. That's a good review. Yeah. I would say. It's from IndieWire, by the way. And Better the from, than the bros on <laughs> the bros. IMDb. The other movies on this list are Go, um, which I, when I saw that title, I was like, oh, yeah, definitely. That's a great uh, movie. And the Big Hit. Uh, two Days in the Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Ameros. Nice. Good pronunciation. Oh, thank you. And Get Shorty, definitely. Even though it only came out a year later. Be Cool, which is a sequel to Get Shorty. Uh, Suicide Kings. Uh, eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Joe Pesci. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that video a lot at yeah. the Blockbuster. I remember seeing that in theaters, actually, when I was very little. Yeah. Uh, Palookaville. And uh, Very Bad Things. It's a long list. And, of course, Boondock Saints. That's so funny because all of these movies ha- are very similar in like tone and style. Like thinking back to it, like yeah. you never think of it. Oh, there's at also the time, but there's also intermission, reindeer games, Phoenix. It's a long ass list, and uh, yeah, that, then it just kind of does honorable mentions at the end. But uh, yeah, so we got our our good review. Even it was a B minus, so it's not a ten out of ten. But I think, but you know, no one was claiming that this movie is a ten out of ten. Not even me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Tyler said that, I think he said that he gave it a seven. Seven? Right. And he was very annoyed by Juliet Lewis. And I was like, why? He was like, at the end, she screams a lot. Okay. Well, yeah. She, I mean, I'm not the biggest Juliet Lewis fan in general. So her her flaws in the movie are just her flaws in all movies. So I'm like Ryan Philippe in the movie. Um, but yeah, so that, do you have anything else to say about Lay the Gun? Um... No, I, I stand by my review. Yeah, and it was uh, it was good listening to our first uh, dispute, dispute, difference of opinions. Uh, it was good. Yeah, I, it's funny. It's like going in to edit that one. I was like, oh, do I really want to edit it? Because you know, I feel. I, I mean, I kind of felt bad about our not arguing, but just having a difference of opinion, such a difference of opinion. Why? Oh, I was just like it uh, makes for. I, oh, I, man, just I for drama, man. <laughs> just, it's just for drama, man. I don't know why, um, specifically, that I was so like hesitant to edit it. But then once I was done with it, I was like, and then listened to it, I was like, no, this is a fun episode. It was like an easy listen yeah, for me. Um, I, I enjoyed listening to it. And I actually was listening to it with my grandma in the car, and she said oh, yeah. that I have a very nice voice. Aww. Thank you, grandma. Thanks, uh, grandma. I don't know what her last name is. 
Uh, it would be the same last name as me. <laughs> well, yes, but maternal grandmothers tend to not have the same last names as their... Uh, and, you know, she's also female, so she could probably remarry and stuff. There's, there's a lot of flaw, no, there's, there's, there's a lot of holes there. in your logic. Abuela said that's her name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now on to our movie of the week. This is the oldest movie we've talked about so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, from 1957. It's Elia Kazan's A Face in the Crowd. I almost immediately asked you what you thought, but we're going to talk about the year 1957 first. Uh, the satellite Sputnik is launched into space, starting the space age and the space race. Federal troops ordered to enforce interrogation of or integration of schools in Little Rock, Ar- Arkansas. The Japanese company uh, Toyota starts selling cars. I almost said Tokyo. Starts selling cars in the U.S. The New York baseball giants moved to San Francisco, and the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Chavez Ravine in Los Angeles. I don't know if you know about the controversy of Chavez Ravine and what they wanted to do with it before the Dodgers moved in. It's a whole. I think the land was like promised to someone or something, right? And there's like a whole there's like a whole family of or a whole community of uh, Mexican families who uh, lived on that land, and they basically kicked them out. Moved them out, yeah. They, the land was like promised to them, and then like whoever developers came and like displaced yeah. all these people. Yeah, and they were going to build like this huge like apartments or like shopping like. This is going to be this big community, and then that fell through. So they're like, well, now that we've kicked everybody out, what can we do with this? And the Dodgers were like, oh, we'll take it. And so there are a lot of uh, people from that generation that got kicked out that really hate the Dodgers because of it, even though it's I mean, not really their fault. So. so a little bit of uh, dark history with the uh, L.A. Uh, the cost of living in 1957. Average income at the time was $4,454. A new home was $20,000. Fuck it. A new car was $2,100. A gallon of gas was 24 cents. Minimum wage was a dollar. Postage stamp was three cents. Like, that really matters now at this point. Uh, yeah, and a gallon of milk was one dollar. Uh, I think a gallon of gas was, or a gallon of milk was one dollar. Yeah, that seems kind of high. That does seem very high, um, considering a gallon of gas was 20 cents. Yeah. Do you want to guess what the best-selling toy of 1957 was? Probably some sort of BB gun. No, um, it was actually something I slightly referenced in a sled. Uh, in uh, the last episode, talking about uh, match Chippendale Rescue Rangers. <laughs> match Home Alone. Uh, <laughs> no, it's uh, Silly Putty. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I should have gone with Slinky. But... Yeah, that would have made sense. Uh, it's around that time, right? I think so. The top five songs of the of 1957 were "So Rare" by Jimmy Dorsey. Uh, Young Love by Tab Hunter, Little Darling by The Diamonds, I mean, these are classics, of course, uh, Love Letters in the Sand by Pat Boone, and All Shook Up by Elvis Presley. The top five money-making movies of the time were Disney's Old Yeller, Search for Paradise, Sayon- oh, Sayonara, <laughs> spelled phonetically, uh, Peyton Place, and the Best Picture winner was also the highest-grossing film of the of the year, Bridge on the River Kwai, which comes out in 4K, uh, 4K Steelbook in a couple days. Very nice. My favorite, some of my favorite movies from 1957 didn't even make that list, like Twelve Angry Men, Paths of Glory, the original 310 to Yuma, Funny Face, Jailhouse Rock, The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries, both by uh, Bergman. Bergman. I don't know. Um, Sweet Smell of Success, uh, Kira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, and uh, 
Witness for the Prosecution from Billy Wilder. Some good movies. That's some fucking great movies, yeah. actually. This movie has an 8.2 on IMDb. It's not listed in the top 250. I think it probably doesn't have enough um, verified votes? votes to make it in the top 250. But other movies that also have an 8.2 on IMDb are Taxi Driver, uh, L.A. Confidential, Die Hard, 1917, Batman Begins for a few dollars more, and Some Like It Hot. Um, Taxi Driver's at 110 on the list, which is insane. That's not higher. And Some Like It Hot is at 130. So that's where it would be if it were officially on that list. It's in good company. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 88 and an audience score of 94, which might be one of the highest audience scores we've talked about so far. Mm -hmm. As far as the box office goes, I couldn't find anything about it. It's not even budget. And it won one award, the Golden Train Award for Best Actor. Whatever that is, who knows? It was over 60, it was 65 years ago. So, yeah. So, what is this movie about? Well, we'll go to Trevor with our perfectly I like, I like too, perfect yeah. analysis of this. Perfect analysis in under Plot. 30 seconds. Yeah. <clears> hmm. <throat> A drunk redneck gets famous and becomes an influencer for the people, all for saying crazy shit and singing songs on the radio. This movie was made in 1957, as prescient as ever. That's it. That's a good allegory or uh, analysis. Or, yeah, it is allegory for, you know, six years ago. And uh, I have a little bit on my notes about how relevant it is today, and I'm sure we'll get into that. So this might maybe this might be our most political episode ever. We'll see. How could we not get political? Right. Um, so as we've said, this is uh, directed by Elia Kazan. It's uh, New York Times, who New York Times described as uh, one of the most honored and influential influential directors in Broadway and Hollywood history. He directed other movies like East of Eden, A Streetcar Named Desire, and On the Waterfront, which is uh, also a great movie. Uh, one of his granddaughters is Zoe Kazan, who was in uh, the uh, the Big Sick, which your brother brought up as one of his uh, honorable mentions. Uh, and she's married to Paul Dano. So, wow, <laughs> <laughs> the little uh, Owen Wilson. Uh, wow, he's wow. he one of the co-founders of the Actor Studio, which influenced the Method acting style, which is based on the Stanlowski system and Stanislavski yeah Stanislavski thank you uh and uh Brando was very method in his way of acting I could have said that more efficiently but you get the idea um do you want to explain to our listener what method is (laughs) method is basically there's that word basically method is when you live as that act as your character so if your character is a boxer, you take up boxing and you learn to box. One of the most infa- infamous um, method actors, can, well, not actors, but like techniques, situations, I guess, for to dumb it down because I couldn't think of a better word, uh, was Heath Ledger spending a month in a hotel room, getting into the mind of the Joker, writing down journals as the Joker, and uh, which some might say have led to his. Uh, his death others would disagree i think that's all just over dramatized to make it Mm -hmm. sound like he just didn't accidentally overdose on yeah on pills but i mean that's one thing i know that uh dustin hoffman uh 
was pretty method, at least in the early days, to the point where uh, Lawrence Olivia said to he said some I can't remember what uh, Hoffman said first about uh, his, what he was doing, and Olivia basically said to him, "It's just it's called acting, son. Like just act. Stop with all this bullshit." <laughs> he didn't say it like that, but that was his, uh, his the idea in his head, and. Uh, so if you've seen Kazan's movies like this or On the Waterfront, A Streetcar Named Desire, or East of Eden, which stars uh, James Dean, you can definitely see the method style very prominent in those performances. And I think... Who's a modern-day method actor? Well, I know a lot of people, he's not technically modern-day, he's still alive, and he still acts. Uh, De Niro is somebody that tends to come to mind when people think of method actors. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is very... Say, you're missing a big one. That was him. <laughs> Which is funny because we, we mentioned Paul Dano just now. Um, when I think of this main performance, I kind of think of There Will Be Blood and that's, that singular performance that is so powerful and it's the crux, I guess, of the movie. Um, it's, the reason why, it's the reason why I recommend it more than anything, but we'll get into that. Um so this is from wikipedia a turning point in kazan's career came with his testimony as a witness before the house committees of un-american activities in 1952 at the time of the hollywood blacklist which brought him strong negative reactions from many friends and colleagues his testimony helped end the careers of former acting colleagues morris karnofsky art smith among with the works of playwright clifford odets Kazan and Odets had made a pact to each other, or to, to name each other in front of the committee. Uh, Kazan later justified his act by saying he took only the more tolerable of two alternatives that were either way painful and wrong. Nearly half century later, his anti-communist testimony continued to cause controversy. When Kazan was awarded an honorary Oscar in 1999, dozens of actors chose not to applaud as 250 demonstrators picketed the event. Um, Orson Welles said Elliot Kazan is a traitor. He is a man who sold to McCarthy all his companions at a time when he could continue to work in New York at high salary and having sold all his people to McCarthy, he then made a film called On the Waterfront, which was a celebration of the informer, which makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you think we should talk about what the Hollywood blacklist is? If we can do a little, um, very quick minute run through instead of getting bogged down in like the details of it well sure but uh i mean the quickest way is to say watch the movie trumbo yeah Uh, there was a lot of especially in the 50s there's what's called the red scare um people were afraid of russian to communism and to be quote-unquote communist meant to be a traitor uh because it's so un-american when in reality the i i mean it's still going on today the idea of being Having believing in socialist and communist ideas isn't necessarily a horrible thing because you know there's social security, there's unions for workers, which are both great things. Uh, one is the idea of everybody being equal is impossible for Americans to conceive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, especially the rich. Exactly. <laughs> this is already getting so political. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's funny how that works. Um, we already lost our two listeners. <laughs> our red hat wearing listeners. Yeah. Um, so if people were named as communists, they got blacklisted, and that meant they could never work again. And I'm sure nobody even knows those names I mentioned of the people that were blacklisted. And to think of how many hundreds of actors and writers and directors and just people in Hollywood who could have been as big as Brando or... Um, I was going to say Andy Griffith, but he wasn't, he was big on TV, TV, Um, but just the list of people who could have been as big as those names could have been household names who didn't get the chance because they were blacklisted because of something as stupid and paranoid as the, uh, the red scare of the, the cold war. So, and that is the Hollywood blacklist. Yep. (laughs) Um, there's going to be a lot of Hollywood. Well, not a lot of Hollywood. I have another thing about Hollywood history at the end. Uh, but while I love Orson Welles' movies, I don't really like him as a person. He's very much into himself. Another person who might have been into himself a little bit too, but who makes great movies, uh, Stanley Kubrick said about Kazan, without question, the best director we have in America and capable of performing miracles with the actors he uses. And anybody who's seen those four movies I've mentioned, would probably agree. Will Trevor agree about this one? We'll see. Uh, <laughs> no, I told you, I fucking hated it. <laughs> so about this, uh, also the writer uh, was Bud Schol- Schulberg, and it's based on a story he wrote called Your Arkansas Traveler, which is a pretty good title too, but I like an, A Face in the Crowd as yeah, well. Yeah, that's a very good title. Yeah. And they say it like 15 times in the movie. A Face in the Crowd? Yeah. They also say uh, Arkansas Traveler a couple times too. Uh, this movie has uncredited roles from Charles Nel- Charles Nelson Riley and Rip Torn. Um, Charles Nelson Riley used to be on TV a lot as uh, like a celebrity contestant in game shows, and Rip Torn was uh, Zed in the Men in Black movies. Yep. So. And he was uh, in Dodgeball. Yeah, Dodgeball. He's the one in the wheelchair throws uh, the wrench. Yeah. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. I don't remember seeing him in the movie, but does he have a speaking role? You know, I looked that up afterwards, and I'm like, wait, who was he? So I wish I saw it before, because then I would have searched for him. He must have not had a speaking role. I mean, there are several scenes with a bunch of just men in rooms, so uh, probably one of those. This is our first movie in black and white, I think, too, right? I believe it is, yes. Not that it really matters, but uh, there's also a long opening credit scene, which is very much... Of the studio system do you know why we don't really have those anymore or when that ended no i would imagine it has something to do with agents fighting for uh credit time and screen time on the screen um i know that like literally uh actors and actresses have it written into their contract like how much like screen time their name gets on like title cards Mm -hmm. which i think is the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard but it's a real thing and the same with like on posters like the location of the actor's names have to be in a certain spot and it can't it has to go before this person and after that one they're like they're such children when it comes to stupid shit like that that's one of the things that one of the many things that surprised me quite a bit in film school to learn that the way the written by or screenplay by um, credit is written in credits or on a poster depends on how much they wrote and when they wrote Mm -hmm. and if it was rewritten like if it says and like the three-letter word versus an ampersand means something totally different and that kind of blew my mind and i don't remember the specifics of that myself so um fortunately i am not a producer 
with the opening credit thing, it kind of stopped with Star Wars. So the first Star Wars came out, and George Lucas was like, oh, I'm not going to have an opening credit sequence. And the producers, the, the studio was just like, who cares? This movie's not going to make any money. So they made a huge, you know, the most money. And so when he went to make the sequel, they're like, you have to put the, them in the opening credits. And he said, no, I don't. And because he was so rich and uh, his movie made so much money, they kind of had to listen to him. So what started the whole trend of not putting them at the beginning and putting them at the end. Because if you watch movies like this one, there are no ending credits. Yeah, it just says the end. Yeah, just says the end. So there are a lot of movies from before the 70s where it just says the end at the end. And Thank you, George Lucas. Yeah, so we can leave. Rest in peace. And then Marvel had to go and fuck it up and put post-credit scenes in there to force us to stay. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, with the ending credits, that means we get the below-the-line people, which are the people who aren't the writers, director, producer, the... Um, the grips, the people with the yeah. very important jobs that do, I don't want to say the most amount of work, but they're the unsung heroes yeah, that are considered below the line. Yeah. So, uh, they're the non-household names. So, let's get into the movie itself. Starts with the... We see a small town in Arkansas. We see a bunch of uh, small town folks. Uh, they mention that it's Fourth of July, or it might be the Fifth of July, because we go to we start in a, dr- a dunk. I, st- I had it right the first time. We start in a drunk tank of uh, a bunch of men, and I don't know if you noticed, but there's like dogs barking in the background. And for some reason, watching it this time, it made me feel like it was like a dog pound. Boys. This is Miss Martha Jeffries. When uh, I did not notice that they were panning across all the people in the the drunk tank, it, it definitely felt like just I had this like vibe of uh, a dog pound, and these people were less than human. Not that dogs are less than human. Sorry, Penelope. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, there's one guy at the front outside the uh, the jail who's uh, cleaning his gun. I'm just like, yep, that's the South. Just in case one of them tries to escape. Exactly. Or he just, you know, because it's Arkansas. Sorry, Arkansas. I doubt we have any fans listening from Arkansas, so. You never know. That's true. Someday we will, and they'll, go, they'll be like, this is a great podcast. Let me go back. I'm facing the crowd. That movie's about our state. Let's listen. Oh. Fuck them. I'm done <laughs> I'm with never them. listening again. Um, we're introduced to Miss Jeffries. Uh, we find out her name is Marsha. And uh, she's played by Patricia Neal. I really haven't seen anything that she did before uh, she was in the day the earth stood still and breakfast at tiffany's two movies i haven't seen and uh yeah i'm kind of surprised that she isn't a household name because i really enjoyed her in this movie and i don't know what you felt about her you, you want me to tell you what i thought about her now yeah why not i thought she was amazing she was the best part yeah. of the movie okay well, that, that does but get I still little... hated the fucking movie now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're in the drunk tank. You, like I said, we can hear dogs barking in the background. It gives the impression of a dog pound, uh, like a bad dog pound. And there's like a weird drawing of the man of a man on the wall. I don't know if you noticed that. Like when she's going to plug in her tape recorder, which she also plugs it into. Yeah, she plugs it into like a light bulb. It's like very weird. Yeah. It's like it, she plugs the cord directly into the same plug that the light bulb is plugged into. Yeah, like, it's like not an outlet on the wall. Like they have the plug screwed into the the socket, and then they have the light bulb light bulb screwed into that, and then there's a thing where you can plug it into it. So it must be something that they had to do way back in the day before. Uh, it's interesting to see. Yeah, because I'm sure I'm. They, there is a uh, cornerstone in the on the building that says 
probably when that building was built so i'm sure it was before indoor electricity but yeah it was very weird to see something from that time maybe it was just because it was you know a small town and it was so long ago so i don't know, I don't know i'm getting hung up on that i get hung up on weird things yeah you do <laughs> like the title of the way of the gun yeah well we found better ones so it proves my point we found one better one <laughs> um you don't like uh, mounds bastard <laughs> I, I still don't know what the fuck that means what it has to do with anything uh we find out that the title of the movie is the title of the radio show a face in the crowd so that's why they say that's it number one yeah quite a few times this is radio kgrk the voice of northeast arkansas bringing you its morning feature a face in the crowd whose face might could be yours are yours or yours because people are fascinating wherever you find them this is Marsha Jeffries looking for more faces in the crowd. This time from the Tommy Hawk County Jail. No one wants to talk to her except for Beanie, who's a, a fun... He looked familiar to me, but I looked him up and he hadn't really done much of anything. And then it cuts to a black man in a separate cell, which I'm like going... With this movie, it kind of feels surprisingly not as racist as you'd expect a movie from the 50s to be that takes place in, in Arkansas. South. Yeah, definitely. But there are definitely some things in there that are for sure racist mm -hmm. including a line we'll get to later they point out the fact that there's a guy passed out in the corner who uh, was singing or he brought a guitar or something so that's where we get introduced to um Rhodes. Uh, that's all he goes by and when they like kick him and move him to uh wake him up he like acts like a rabid dog mm -hmm. or like a feral cat so adds to that idea of it being a pound um but then he sees Marsha, and he changes his uh, changes his tune. Mind the pun. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is Andy Griffith, of course, uh, our, our main actor. This is the uh, his first on screen appearance. Uh, apparently, he was like a comedian before, but uh, three years after this, uh, he gets his own show, the Andy Griffith Show. It ran from 1960 to 1968. Did you watch reruns of that? I did not. I watched a lot of reruns of that back in the day. As soon as I heard that theme song, I would either turn off the TV or change the channel. <laughs> that theme song is annoying. Any whistling song is annoying. And strangely enough, in that show, he played Andy Taylor, not Andy Griffith, even though it's called the Andy Griffith Show. And I feel like, feel like they did that a few times with sitcoms in the 50s and 60s. Uh, after the Andy Griffith Show ended, he didn't, did a lot of guest uh, spots on other shows until 1986 when he played a second most famous character the criminal defense attorney ben matlock uh, and then he died in 24 or 2012 at the age of 86 which is pretty That's decent age good life yeah uh, especially when you are a household name just from tv like he was and he only did the two shows really only did the two shows but those characters are so famous especially of a certain generation so he strikes a deal with the uh, the sheriff to be released if he plays a song for her um, radio show. Uh, he, that's where he gets the name Lonesome Roads from her, from uh, Marsha. And it's the first time we hear his laugh. What did you think? <laughs> I answered that question. Yes, what did you think of his laugh? Sure did. Uh, it was very fucking annoying. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I That's the thing. is like when I first hear that laugh, it's like, ugh. But as you hear it more, it kind of takes on its different meanings as it goes through. And I believe I have it written down for each one where it takes on different meanings. But we'll get so we'll get to that. Uh, he's an alcoholic. Well, I talk about the Hayes Code after we talk about the movie. So we'll get into that, what that means to tease you for stay, sticking around for the entire episode. Uh, teasing people, Gaddy. But when people were alcoholics in movies, they couldn't be like belligerently drunk 
they had to be just like louder, happier, <laughs> you know, not going around puking showing the, the actual yeah what what it looks like to be drunk of being an alcoholic yeah and Lonesome Road sings uh, if you notice uh, Marsha watching him as he's singing um, she does this thing that uh, Roger Ebert actually pointed out about uh, Ingmar Bergman the uh, female lead of uh, Casablanca where when she's watching uh, Humphrey Boat yeah Humphrey Bogart I don't know why names aren't sounding right in my head right now probably tired um, where she kind of paints in his words, paints his face with her eyes. So she's like looking him up and down all over his face while they're they're talking. And I I do love seeing that, especially for movies of this era. And she does that very well in this. Uh, but I thought it was funny that it's obviously that he wasn't playing the guitar. Right yeah, there. he was just like smacking it. It looked like he was punching the guitar, but it was like perfectly in tune. Which is weird because... I said that to trust. I was like, he's not playing the guitar. <laughs> Which is weird because I think he can play... If not, he's that's like one of his character traits in like everything. I think he plays guitar in the Andy Griffith show. I think he does in I mean, pretty much everything he does. So it's kind of weird the idea of him not playing it more realistically. Yeah. So it's very bizarre. Yeah. And then uh, she shows the tape to Uncle JB and he loves it. So they call the sheriff and he's already let him go. So they go uh, chasing after him to find him, to pick him up, and uh, they try to convince him to take a job at the radio station, but Lonesome is uh, reluctant, and he's also being really creepy uh, to her, which, you know, he looks uh, looks a little more evil than the day before, now that he's free, and he threatens to even steal the car. Come on, Beanie. Come on, Beanie. Listen, I ain't got but four or five days to make it to St. Joe. Unless I steal somebody's car. Now you just wait a minute. We got a job for you every morning on our station, seven to eight. I don't want no job. Why not? It's too much, too much like work, man. You got any money? Oh, Mama'll always get me a little meal, brains. I can sleep in a jail. Come on, try it for a day. How about if you had a plane ticket to Florida? You put it in your pocket. If you ever want to go, you just go. He is being creepy in that scene, but at the same time, they also like look at each other like they're falling in love. I don't really know what to say about that. Okay, <laughs> like I did have something. We could just leave that where it lies. Yeah. So uh, he he gets told to get in the back, but he gets in the front seat and, and gets like real close to her, and uh, they leave Beanie, <laughs> which is kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything to say about the opening of this movie? No, not specifically. Um, from the opening shots, though, I will say that it's shot. The entire movie is shot very, very well. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, and like we've, I mentioned, I think last week that this is your first Elia Kazan movie. So yes, it is. Uh, Actually, no, I've seen East of Eden. You have seen East of yes. Eden? Okay. Yeah, we watched it at school. Oh, and, okay. So yeah, I don't understand film why class. I didn't take film history class. Yeah, it was awesome. one. It was yeah, great class. Um, what I would give right now for a good film history class. Mm-hmm. Other than that. I like how you pointed out the fact that when he uh, is sleeping and he gets not kicked but nudged with the foot, he mm-hmm. like grabs the leg and looks like he's about to like bite down yeah. on it like a dog. He even has his like hands out like claws. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and he looks ferocious. He looks like he's could be potentially rabid. Um, so it's a great introduction to well. I guess for us, because we know him as like the good old family man, yeah. like seeing that is interesting. But I guess back then it was like not as much as a surprise because that was his first big thing. Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, this movie I know didn't do well because when yeah. you talk about Elliot Kazan, you talk about those other three movies I mentioned. Nobody really ever mentions A Face in the Crowd. Um, 
don't know if you remember the trailer that plays at the end of the last episode of our podcast, which is the trailer for this movie, and how they talk about how he is, like, he he found um, James Dean, and not, and then he found Marlon Brando, and now here's the the third person to that list. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andy Griffith, another sensational newcomer from Ilya Kazan, who brought you Marlon Brando and James Dean and Carol Baker. I think he mentioned another name too, but I forget because um, it wasn't a household name. But now we have Andy Griffith and just that idea of if this movie was successful, that he could have been the next Brando. And that would be an interesting alternate history, but instead he became... Uh, Matlock. Matlock and Andy Griffith, or Andy Taylor. And, and um, idol to all the senior citizens around the world. <laughs> yeah, and like you said, seeing him in the Andy Griffith show for so many years, and I'm sure I've seen an episode or two of Matlock, to see him do that and then see this was such a surprise for me. Uh, it was kind of like when you hear Bob Saget stand up for the first time yeah. after watching Full House and... Uh, uh, or hearing his else. joke in the aristocrats yeah did you hear that i i watched that, that like movie, 23 yeah. minute version <laughs> and then this person's fucking this person yeah, this, yeah it's just like like he goes out of his way to make sure to be as far away from danny T- tanner yeah well he used to rest in peace yeah uh lonesome roads hotel uh, starts going through or she starts going through his briefcase and she finds a bra to suitcase i said briefcase but yeah suitcase i have suitcase written down too so uh she finds a bra uh, which shows that he's also a uh, womanizer and uh sleeps around it's putting it mildly yeah uh he fling i like how he flings his luggage and then he starts to drink he's drinking not from you know a nice glass or something he's drinking from the little bottle to show that he's an alcoholic (laughs) you know Unlike the hundreds, millions of Americans that came back from World War II and had PTSD, who didn't understand what PTSD was, and uh, became alcoholics because of the trauma they went through from the war and all that. But uh, even if they had nice jobs, which a lot of people did back then because it was easier to get a nice paying job, especially if you're white, in the 50s. This is our most political episode. I was going to say, that's (laughs) the most political thing I think I've ever heard you say. Well, it's true. There's a whole history about the GI Bill and uh, that I, I won't get into. Well, look it up. It, it was a, a racist bill. So then we uh, go to the studio, the radio studio, and she holds up a sign that says three more minutes. So instead of playing for another three minutes, he sits down and starts talking, which is what people start responding to. The public starts responding to because he starts telling stories about his uh, his cousin Hurry because he's always in a hurry and. Um, he starts talking crap about husbands not understanding their wives and i like how it cuts to that that older couple and she looks at him and he looks back and he's like well gotta go to work gotta go to work um, i gotta go i gotta go <laughs> <laughs> uh, everybody's just gonna assume that's from the way of the gun um i'll just keep teasing that until that's eventually funny. we tell that story and it starts showing how he's able to manipulate people, even without knowing it, how he's able to manipulate people, because he doesn't quite realize it yet until a few scenes later. Uh, he starts getting stacks upon stacks of fan mail. He's a huge hit. Lonesome is uh, sleeping at Uncle BJ. So I keep wanting to say BJ. Uncle JB's desk. He JB's pretty happy because advertisers start calling in. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to say about the hotel room or the studio or the sleeping. No. All right. Moving right along. 
uh, <laughs> so we go to the bar, and he has like piles upon piles of drinks now to con- to really hammer home the idea that he's an alcoholic. And he makes eye contact with the waitress and is like flirting with her. And that's when we fart, start fart. Finally, <laughs> that's when we fart. <laughs> we finally we finally get his uh, first name. We find out it's Larry. And that's when he starts flirting with uh, Marsha as well. I this is when he starts the subtle the more subtle aspect of his performance comes out where he's talking about his family and his dad was a he said he was like a carnival barker which makes sense he can understand where he gets his his loudness from and his showmanship from and his mother uh, introduced him to many different uncles <laughs> where do you come from oh Marlo. any time you can mention for 500 miles i bet i lived in a day or two what'd your father do he was a spieler with a two-bit carnival now, if each and every one of you will hand me up your $1 bills, I'm going to favor you with a $5 gift. You sort of loved him, didn't you? Ran off and left us when I was knee-high to a beer barrel. Your mother had to take care of you? Never mind about her. What about all those aunts and uncles you're always talking about? Uncles? I wish I had a nickel for every time I fell asleep waiting for my old lady to come home. When I'd wake up, she'd say, shh, your uncle's sleeping. I'd say, Uncle Lou? She'd say, no, this is your Uncle Mike or Uncle Moe. Seemed like there wasn't a town in Arkansas or Missouri I didn't have an uncle in. Yes, ma'am. My old lady sure was generous about taking in relatives. Oh, spoilers again for this movie. I don't know why I feel the need to say it every episode, every but I'm episode. sure there's going to be somebody who's going to listen in. Because, you know, every episode is someone's first episode, right? Yeah. That's Stanley's philosophy about comic books, that every comic book is somebody's first comic book. So I was like, Stanley from The Office? But I got yeah, you now. Stanley. Did I stutter? <laughs> Have you lost your mind? Because why help me find it? <laughs> that's one of the best that's, lines. Yeah, that's the best. He says that he puts... Uh, she says, you put your whole self into that laugh. And then he says, I put my whole self into everything I do. I actually put that down. I wrote that down because there's a lot of like those one line like quotes that he says that are like really, really quotable and like really well written. Mm-hmm. Um, that was definitely one of them. <laughs> you put your whole self into that laugh, don't you? Marcia, I put my whole self into everything I do. And because of that laugh, the sheriff hears him because it is such an iconic laugh. And uh, so he comes over and starts trouble and he starts uh, fighting with Lonesome. And then we cut away to... Before the fight even gets a chance to come to fruition. You just hear like the start of a scuffle and then like that's it. Yeah, because then it cuts away. You see he has a black eye. But uh, he's back at the studio talking and he just has pies all over the place even marcia's eating a slice and she she has a plate and a fork and he's just eating a slice of apple pie with his hand uh, i assume it's apple because it's in black and white can't tell if it's peach or not yeah it definitely adds to his good old boy nature of you know being like a dog trash yeah speaking of dogs he starts using his influence to bombard the sheriff with dogs he tells everybody in the town to bring your dog to the sheriff because he told the story he about likens him to being a dog catcher yeah. like that's all he's good for which uh is my favorite scene in the movie 
Yeah, because it's just like there's thousand dogs. dogs in a yard. Also. Yeah, that's my dream. And they all look very like a similar breed too, did, which yeah. is weird. It's probably because I'm sure in 1957 there were several breeds that didn't make it to America yet, and there definitely weren't a lot of crossbreeding. I'm sure back then. So, uh, yeah. If so, if you're a fan of dogs, that's a lot of dogs. That's a good scene. No, no dogs looked like they were hurt in that scene. Yes. There's a scene later where we hear a yelp from a dog, from a like a puppy, but uh, it's off screen, so it's probably added in post. So, so relax, Trevor. I'm sure the dog wasn't hurting. No, I don't think that was off screen. <laughs> that was when she is getting off the plane, right? Yeah. With the chihuahuas. Yeah. No, you can see what happened, but the mm. the dog's okay. So. Okay. I looked away at that moment and then this time around. Oh, but I forgot you've seen this recently. This yeah, is like this is second my second time. time. Um, so yeah, so if I happen to look away at the exact moment twice, then I'll miss things. But I feel like I picked up a lot of things on this viewing that I didn't really notice the first time. Uh, but with his, he's he's out. He actually shows up at the sheriff's when there's like a bunch of kids around him, and Marcia says to him something about like, "Look at the influence that you have. Look at like the power or something like that." And he starts, and he goes, stops and thinks for a second. He goes, yeah. That's when he, like, really realizes that's that, his turning point. Yeah, that he can use his gifts to control people, to influence people. How does it feel? Oh, how does one feel? Well, I just say anything comes into your head and being able to sway people like this. Uh, yeah, I guess I can. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it can. So that's when we see a news report from John Cameron Swayze, who was a real news reporter. And he's a sixth cousin once removed of Patrick Swayze. Oh, is he? Yeah. I don't know what the once removed aspect of that means. I don't know what that means, yeah. Write in, tell us. A theatrical agent shows up at his hotel. And uh, as he shows up, Marsha shows up with him. And a blonde woman leaves with uh, all the dishes so he tries to play it off at like oh, oh thank you for for bringing my breakfast he even tells her he tells her when she's leaving like uh walk straight through them don't stop yeah like he's he's coaching her on what to do to make it seem like he didn't just have sex with her yeah i was saying affair but he's not married to anybody not, so well not even dating dun, dun, dun. oh yeah that's right he is uh <laughs> did you see this movie or what? <laughs> <laughs> i forget about that um and i'm wondering if it's the waitress from the night before probably is right uh, you know what i don't know uh he gets an offer from the agent to uh, play the at the grand old opry um so he plays hard to get as he says and implies that marcia is also playing hard to get which is pretty creepy the way he does it and uh he says that he gets hungry in the morning when he's talking about the uh, the waitress. He's not talking about pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> Just change those letters around a little bit, and you'll get the uh, the true meaning behind what he means. What he what he said. Uh, and he makes Marsha uncomfortable, of course, because he made all of us uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's not a, he's not a nice person, but neither is someone like Daniel Plainview. But. Uh, who has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice that every single person in this movie is like sweating profusely the entire yeah. movie? Yeah, because And I know that it was filmed like in August, but Jesus Christ, like everybody has pit stains. Everybody's mm-hmm. like, I mean, profusely sweating in every, every shot. It definitely adds to the idea that this is some small town. They're not very rich. Uh, like nobody can afford an air conditioner. The sheriff at one point is sitting in front of a fan. Which is like his head of hair holy shit it's like i wouldn't imagine a sheriff to have that kind of hair yeah 
It's very long, curly, oily. <laughs> You're yeah. saying he's miscast or the hairdresser didn't do a great no, job? No, I don't know. It was just surprising to see it. It looks like he belonged in the Jackson 5. Yeah, it looks. He, he should probably have hair that looks more like mine, but cut down. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of disgusting. It definitely adds to the atmosphere. His character, yeah. Yeah, of uh, just everything I mentioned, the South, all that. Uh, so it's a very, it's an extra hot morning. So he has his audience. Uh, he also has somebody, a bunch of people watching through the window now as he's becoming more popular to show without telling that he's becoming more popular. Uh, our obligatory, uh, obligatory oh my God. reference. So he uh, sends the neighbor kids to J.B. Jeffrey's pool, which is his boss, which is kind of like a, I mean, everything he does is a bit of a dick move, but that was that's when he started going that he doesn't really care necessarily about who he offends he's not gonna be like oh he's my boss so i better bow down before him but then it turns out to be this great idea because then everybody he's broadcasting from the side of the pool and uh more people are listening the pool's full of um kids like completely full of kids uh it's a really nice looking pool too because <laughs> when you watch this movie like you're talking about how it's uh hot everybody shit. yeah everybody looks hot as shit during it and then you see that pool you're just like it looks so nice i want to get in that pool while he's there he gets an offer for tv in memphis and he ups the offer from 500 to a thousand by saying well i mean maybe if you don't want me then i forget how he words it he but. says like i'll come down and i'll do it for free for a couple weeks and if it doesn't work out for you if it doesn't work out for me then i'll walk away but if I do improve your situation, then you're going to pay me a thousand dollars. And shows how confident he is that he would do that. Yeah. That he's able to kind of bluff in a bit, in a sense. But, uh, considering yeah. he's new to this, he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, yeah. but apparently he does know what he's doing. Yeah. He just has this natural talent. Mm-hmm. Oh, he also convinces them as part of his, uh, deal to take Marsha with him. It's cool for her benefits her so she can be a producer for the show but also kind of a way to keep her in his reach so then we cut to the train as he's leaving from memphis and he says take good care of him oh she says she has like some old woman saying take good care of him for me which is strange because i don't know who that woman is uh she's probably just explained she's probably just a listener yeah cares about him probably sees herself as being like a, a mother like yeah idolizes the idea of being a mother to him mm-hmm. like oh he just needs a good mother and i'm sure you know because obviously he didn't have a good mother but yeah we don't know who this character is what the point i'm trying to get to and then jb says to Marsha, take good care of yourself like watch out for that that guy and that's when she kind of like second guesses like should i be doing this she has this look in her face of like contemplation and then obviously she goes with him uh lonesome starts yelling goodbye to everybody and then he turns around and starts talk, talking crap about the town Shake that gun. I was only kidding, honey. You all know me better than to believe everything I say. <laughs> bye! Bye! Goodbye! And God bless you, good people! Which is a great shot. Um, I made a note of that. Um, it's like, it's on the train, kind of hanging out of the window as Lonesome's hanging out of the window. And it's obviously they're traveling away from the station and everyone's waving and very happy just kids running after the train which is um always safe very very <laughs> safe but actually if you look at a certain point a guy i don't know if it was like 
an actor or if it was planned or whatever but at a certain point a man like steps in and like grabs the kids and like pulls them over to the side <laughs> like because they're running alongside the uh. train which can't possibly be safe yeah because it's a real train obviously yeah. yeah and someone probably told that kid like you're gonna hurt yourself like get over here because they didn't have cgi back then obviously they didn't no how do you explain it never mind <laughs> what i have written next to my notes is shot with the train on the right and the crowd on the left as the train leaves so i also made a note of that shot being pretty great that was a great shot yeah yeah maybe i'll take a screenshot of that and that could be what you post on instagram for this one okay. if you want um although the criterion cover for us, for this is pretty cool too it's like the yelling one uh no it's uh i think that's what like the itunes image is it's him like looking back over his shoulder you could probably look it up while uh i talk about this next scene okay uh, he's at the uh, studio in memphis uh he's getting makeup put on and he doesn't like it because he's a man and uh, doesn't understand the necessity of makeup for cameras especially back then especially when everybody's sweating their ass off uh and that's when we get introduced to his uh, assigned writer mel miller played by walter Matthau. are you looking did you find it i did it looks like he's slapping his ass <laughs> kind of does yeah he's got like a goofy grin and that's a really cool cover but yeah i think i like the train shot better oh yeah for sure it was awesome to see um Walter Matthau. Walter Matthau as the younger dude. Yeah. Because I had never seen him like anything before, you know. Yeah, because... 1980 or whatever. Yeah, he, he's he been... He was in a lot of things, but this was... I mean, obviously this didn't do well, so I can't say that this is his like big break or anything. Because uh, it wasn't a big break for anybody involved. Except for Walter Matthau, who went on to become famous uh, with... Especially The Odd Couple in 1968 with mm -hmm. his... Uh, eventual eventual uh, I, I said eventual i was gonna say life partner but <laughs> it sounds like more like i'm uh, making fun of that idea but his his uh, colleague long time long time collabor collaborator no they don't you know what i'm saying you 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 said it right uh they actually made and do you want to guess how many movies that uh jack lemon and walter Matthau made together nine eight very close thank you um <laughs> there are a lot of sequels in that list uh, he was in Charade in 1963, which is another criterion I keep seeing pop up that people keep talking about being great, so I'll probably watch that soon. He's also in Hello, Hello Dolly, The Bad News Bears, and Grumpy Old Men. Walter Matthau is probably the most successful person in this movie. I mean, after it. I would like, agree. At least for movies. Television, obviously, would be uh, our lead. And... <laughs> Glad you got the noisy chair now. <laughs> Um, and that's uh, and I forget what Mel, Walter Matthau, and Lonesome say to each other, but you can tell that they kind of hit it off right away, which is a good thing, and shows the uh, the strength of Walter Matthau. Lonesome, this is Mel Miller. The station's assigned to me as your rider. Rider? You're gonna have an easy job in the world, boy, because I never learned too much reading. I'll just block out the continuity for you. What are you, Eastern College? No, as a matter of fact, I went to school over in Nashville. I was Vanderbilt 44. Okay, Vanderbilt 44. He's uh, very much of that archetype of the TV writers from back then. He kind of, I don't know why I just thought of uh, the guy who wrote The Odd Couple, Neil Simon. I don't know why I just immediately, my brain thought that he was like playing Neil Simon, but I don't even know really what Neil Simon looks like or sounds like or acts like. So my brain just, I think because of Odd Couple, I just immediately uh, associated with him as with Neil Simon. 
I'm just rambling today. Yeah, you kind of are. Uh, so Lonesome removes this makeup, and uh, now he's going to look all shiny. And then somebody hands him a uh, straw to put his uh, his mouth to look more country, even though they're in Memphis, so they should probably know what that looks like. Maybe they're people imported from New York or L.A., probably New York. Actors, yeah. I'm looking at the microphone, and it's like level with his hat, going, that's definitely going to be in the shot. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's definitely gonna be like a extreme close-up on his face i guess but even then it's it's it was like n- touching his hat basically and then you start recording and he's just like he seems out of his element at first and he even turns the monitor around and he's you can see the people in the background like no don't don't face the camera this way and he turns the monitor around and just takes to tv the way he took to radio like once he gets rid of the things that they tried to put on him the makeup i guess him removing the makeup is him is kind of a, a metaphor for it. uh one of our friends who he says he listens to the podcast uh, i guess to say everett because uh, i'm not gonna say anything bad about him uh he says when he listens to the podcast he forgets that he's not having a conversation with the the two of us and starts talking and goes oh wait no sorry i can't that's so, cute. Can't. That's um, so cute but there was one time we were trying to think of the word metaphor and he's apparently yelling he yelled at, at us yeah. yeah he's like metaphor damn it <laughs> as uh i do to myself sometimes when i listen back i said he starts to do his thing and then he talks about it, taking his 12-hour naps the quote and I'm not sure if he says it during that scene with Mel, but I wrote it down. Um, he says, I'd love to have your money, but I'd rather have my pride. Is that during that scene with Mel? It sounds familiar. I'm trying Anyways, to remember where. I, 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 d- a, I definitely know that line. great quote. Yeah. Great no. line. And it kind of helps solidify like who he is as a person. Yeah. At this point, anyway. Yeah. Before he starts to change even more. I don't think he's ever greedy in this movie he doesn't no, show any signs of that's greed. the thing and it's like at the end i was gonna mention this but like he's when you first told me about this movie you're like oh andy griffith is like so unlike andy griffith he's an asshole and i was like okay i was expecting him to like slap women and yeah you know whatever but like he's he's like misguided like let's put it yeah. that way obviously he's a redneck um his dad was a carny his mom was a slut yeah but he's like doing things that he actually believes in at the beginning and then slowly he starts to change into this like monster um but like i kind of felt for him because he felt like he was doing the right thing and you know he was just speaking his mind basically and he wasn't really being abusive or what's the word i'm looking for toxic well he's been he's toxic for sure Yeah, he's toxic but he wasn't being um malicious malicious in what he was saying he was speaking his mind at the beginning so like him saying i'd love to have your money but i'd rather have my pride is like yeah he's he has morals he has things that are more important Mm -hmm. to him than money so it shows that he's like not greedy he's not just like about money yeah he's not gonna just become like a puppet on the strings (laughs) yeah he's not gonna conform to the man that was my little pinocchio what's it going did you see the trailer for the new pinocchio movie no with tom hanks with tom hanks directed by robert zemeckis no i'm looking at going i don't know i guess it could be good but i just know man tom hanks can do no wrong although elvis he's very strange in that well yeah but that's more makeup than anything no have you heard like him talking oh yeah okay fine Uh, back to the story (laughs) at hand well that's one of the big things about this movie is that it it's Tries so. to just laugh like the sports center. That's how she laughed. Play it back. 
<laughs> You'll hear it. <laughs> God, this is fucking off Speaking the rails. Could have been toxic and malicious. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so one of the big moments, which I, I'm just. I mean, they make kind of a big deal about it, but they don't make a bigger deal than I would have expected going back to this movie not being as, <laughs> as racist as <laughs> you did that right over the pot filter. So it was like a big, yeah. one of the moments that I thought would be that realistically it, with it being Memphis probably would have been a little more like outrage coming from the other people uh, is when he brings a black woman onto television. Yeah. Um, that's like a, a exactly i was very surprised to see that and then they show um other black families like watching and they're mm-hmm. like oh my god like it's it's one of us like that kind representation of thing. yeah yeah which is still a very i mean it's always important but it's still something we talk about today to see you know representation in star wars or superhero movies or you know traditionally all real things men, yeah like, yeah real stories which i think is funny that somebody brought up a quote or somebody quoted quote is the word i didn't want to use somebody said the idea that like oh yeah it's good that these uh the black kids now have you know this fictional king from africa to look up to versus you know all these other real world people like martin luther king malcolm x and you know can't think of his last name but another character played by uh chadwick boseman jackie robinson well jackie robinson of course but uh thurgood marshall oh uh yeah that guy played like Every Everybody, iconic black yeah, character, yeah. <laughs> black person, real people, not characters. But yeah, so that was something that I thought they probably would have in real life in '57 made a bigger deal about. Like would've, people would have yeah. like lost their minds. But you know, the people, the the common folk in this movie were very accepting of that idea. And because he's ta- he starts talking about how she lost her house, so you should send in money to help her get a new house. And people do like even old white women were like, "Oh yes, absolutely, I'll, I'll help this woman out." And I'm like going, and the white men playing cards, yeah, like, yeah, they're like playing cards, and they're like half of this pot is gonna go to her. And I was like, "Wow, if only it was like that in real life." Yeah, too bad. I mean, it's early enough in the movie to where it shows that he's using his influence for good. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I guess that kind of feels maybe out of place, or maybe it's just a way to another way to indoctrinate himself into their hearts of becoming even more likable by the audience in order to really have control over them. Because if he does something like this, then they can always be like, oh, he's such a nice person. Look what he did for this woman who, who didn't have a house and you know all this stuff. Um, so that's probably the point of why he did that. That's a good question. Did he have the foresight to see, to think that far ahead politically and be like, oh, I'm going to do this and this will get me, you know, in with more like, you know, like, politicians like oh i have to i have to spend some time with like the black crowd and yeah. the senior citizens to further my vote you know what mm-hmm. i mean to, so, to get that diversity vote yeah it's interesting to think about if he's doing that because he wants to move further ahead or if he's genuinely like doing this because he's passionate about it yeah good question Maybe something a third. Let's ask uh, Kazan. He's still alive, right? We can yeah, email of him. And he has a new sponsor, which is a mattress company. But they show the wheelbarrow full of wheel wheelbarrow. I always thought it was barrel, but it's barrow. Weird. Yeah, barrow. Yeah. Which I don't know what a barrow is, but a wheelbarrow. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. 
So there you go. I always just assumed that it was a, a barrel that was like cut in half and then put wheels on it. Uh, so no, which I apparently I'm not the only person to have thought that. So <laughs> and it looks like it. I mean, they might be silver dollars, but I think he says something about sending half a dollar. So it says four bits. I don't know what a bit is. Yeah, I don't know either. Maybe it's because he's so um, rural, which is a difficult word to say. Uh, that uh, redneck. Yeah, you can say it. it's okay. He's so country. Uh, this time he also has a live audience uh, that love him. They're like losing their mind. And he starts doing a commercial read of uh, the mattress company, but he uh, goes looking for the copy and starts pulling out things like, oh, call me for a good time, stuff, you know, pulling out of his pocket. Uh, and everybody's laughing. And, uh, then he starts making fun of the sponsor. You didn't know I had a sponsor, did you? Neither did I. They woke me up this morning. You good looking, Scout, later. What? Yeah, I got the commercial on me somewhere. Let's see, yeah. See, it's uh, Johnny Longshot's tip for the Daily Double. No, no, that ain't it. Yeah. That's, that's Lonesome. Darling, you ain't forgetting your little Arkansas Annie. No, that surely ain't it. Friends, comma, why not invest in sleep insurance, question mark. That is what you will be doing when you buy your Luffler Easy Rest mattress, period. Comes in six tasty flavors. Oh, yeah, that's our next commercial. Personally, when I'm dog tired, I can sleep on the floor. One of the best night's sleep I've had is in a boxcar. They say that, that a firm mattress is better for your spine. But now, if you're going to follow that all the way, ain't it just better just go ahead and sleep on the floor? Mm. But if some of you soft insist on sleeping on the bed, I reckon you can do worse than a Luffler Easy Rest. End the commercial. Which outrages the sponsor, of course, and the uh, TV people were obviously upset about that. So we go from there to uh, lunch. He goes to lunch uh, and his agent, oh yeah, so his agent is also upset about the, the ad reading. And that's when we get introduced to Joey De Palma, who's uh, becomes Lonesome's manager and is, is as despicable as Lonesome himself, uh, I would say. Uh, maybe a little more sleazy. Very sleazy. Yeah. He's uh, kind of the archetype of Hollywood agents yeah. in movies and shows. Dressed very nicely, slick back hair. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if like this is a knock on Italian Americans because they weren't as weren't seen very well around this time was anybody that like any non-white people seen yeah. in a good light so then uh, he does another ad read and uh doubles down on not uh, bowing to the sponsors which is very much in his character what we've already seen mr lovely told me he don't like me to talk nicely about his mattress shucks i said you could get a good night's sleep on one of them if you're real tired <laughs> I go again. But I just can't seem to get my mouth around some of them things they want me to say. Well, I'll try. <laughs> and now, a message of importance. Now, you good people ain't so dumb you don't know what's important. Adam bombs important and things like that. 
I don't reckon a Luffler mattress will break your back, but it sure ain't no world-shaking message. <laughs> well, just in case you won't be seeing me again. Hey, fellas. Here's a little song to remember me by. And he starts singing about being a free man again, which um, I think is the main theme of this movie about uh, what does it mean to be free? We meet Lonesome in jail at first, and he has to perform in order to be set free. So he has to do something against his will in order to get that freedom. Uh, And he's on his way to being free to do whatever he wants, despite the uh, consequences of being broke, uh, which is also its own prison in and of itself and he gets offered a job but he's reluctant because it's not as free as he would want to be he doesn't have the freedom to just up and leave and he only takes it when they say yes you can be that free you can leave whenever you want when he's get told he gets told three minutes before uh, he has three minutes left so he changes his tune you know they start saying no you only have three minutes so then he just goes screw your three minutes, I'm going to do whatever I want. And he quickly realizes he can control their people or take their freedoms away, in a sense, even though it's subconsciously. And uh, he becomes uh, burdened by uh, a sponsor and wants to break free of that. So that's m- looking back on the movie and its themes so far. Uh, do you? Would you agree with that sentiment? As far as the breakdown of his... Um would you say that freedom plays a huge part of it was yeah freedom is like a running yeah theme of this movie i think you're spot on with um how he had to basically perform to get his freedom and although he wasn't he didn't have a job but he was truly truly free from all commitments and you know and now he feels like he's trapped again but now he's starting to see like oh i don't need to be trapped i can do whatever i want i can start trapping other people yeah at them to do what i want do what yeah exactly and then the scene ends with a a close-up of his face with the crowd in the background which i mean i just thought of it right now face in the crowd there you go <laughs> that's number four <laughs> so yeah i really like that shot that was a great shot he started he st- he's like you know screw you i want to quit because they do want to restrict him back to the, the theme they want to restrict him by uh saying you need to show us your scripts before you go on stage and he's like i don't have any scripts so i just go off the cuff I, i'm free uh and he says i one of the lines that he says when he's going to uh leave uh marcia oh yeah because he's that he's like walking down a hallway and he has all his luggage with him and he's uh he's about to leave and he says to marcia see you in jail sometime i was just like oh, such a that would have been a great ending line of the of the movie if yeah. he actually did leave i just thought i'd tell you i'm hitting out i'm gonna hit the road well we did oh what's the difference mr Lovler. He wants to fire me unless I promise to show him my scripts in advance. <laughs> ain't no scripts, it's just me. Was me. Stay. Even on suspension. Well, what you did for Miss Cooley? I'm not my brother's keeper. It's just that you are and you don't know it. Nah, I don't count out of no mattress company. Sing in jail sometime. Uh, but she should have said that to him at the end. Yeah, that would have been great. Uh, so then uh, they have the first kiss. Going on to the theme of freedom. She's trapped by him, even though he's not physically stopping her from leaving. There's something in her that keeps her from leaving him. And, or She's interested in him in yeah. more ways than one. It's not just like a, like a romantic interest. She's like genuinely like curious and intrigued by him because mm-hmm. he's 
a fucking weirdo, but you know what I mean? He's very, um, he's also very, aside from being, you know, white trash and kind of. Is that a, is that a slur? I don't care. That one I don't care about. White trash. No one cares about that. Yeah, even is like, eh. Yeah. Aside from being, you know, uh, potentially kind of an asshole or just rude um he's also you know interesting and he speaks his mind and he's super charming he can be super charming um when he's not yelling or doing his annoying ass laugh at the top of his lungs um you can see people he's got a nice smile you know what i mean Mm -hmm. he's got like you said he's he's a handsome dude he's suave yeah yeah um for for a redneck he's suave yeah uh he's definitely He's got that southern charm that uh, women are attracted to, uh, at least back then, or especially back then. But uh, I was going to say, oh, well, about his laugh, I think at this point in the movie, it's iconic. It's his trademark. It's his calling card. So when people hear that, it brings positive feelings to him about him. It reminds them of his thing. Oh, that was the other thing I was going to say. Mel later in the movie um, says something about, like, we were all fooled by him or we were all in his trance or something like that and i think that's what she is is in she's in a bit of a trance does uh, he say that during this scene is that what you're saying no he, he says it towards the end okay because uh, yeah there's another i think during that same time he has another quote that's like really really good yeah yeah great performances all around uh, in my opinion but uh i agree we'll, okay i was gonna say well, we might need to wait and see what you think so they start picketing the mattress company because right. yeah they're in front of the office in front of the office but at the same time their sales are up 55 percent since lonesome started saying that and i'm like are they up because they want to burn his mattresses <laughs> i mean it's like a sale's a sale right so um and that's when you find out i think that's where we find out that joey De Palma is working for that mattress company. I don't know if when he quits or if he quits. He calls a big agency in New York about roads, an ad agency in New York, and uh, tries to sell them Lonesome Roads as a a product or as a spokesperson for their products. No, I think you said it right the first time as a product. That's what he is. He's something that helps sell something else. Yeah. People who tune into A Face in the Crowd or whatever. I don't remember if the TV show has a name. Or at least the first TV show. Yeah, I don't know. I know the second one does. The uh, ad agency selling a miracle pill. They're selling it as a miracle pill um, called Vitagex. It has sugar, caffeine, aspirin in it. It's... He says... Someone uh, who analyzed what's in it says, it won't kill you. (laughs) It's like, okay, cool. If it won't kill them, then we're good and but it kind of seems like it's it doesn't do much for you either way mm-hmm. i mean maybe like a little a bit of sugar placebo type thing yeah pretty much uh yeah it's a sugar pill so there you go uh because they said like it says sugar but it also says glucose and glucose is sugar mm-hmm. so lonesome arrives and that's when he winks at a woman being himself you know his uh flirtatious self and uh that's when lonesome looks at the pill and people are talking we should do this and he looks at it and starts coming up with ideas for it he says it should be yellow you know like sunshine so it'll bring this positive vibe i guess i'm not a big fan of that word but he's yeah, he quite that a bit too but yeah uh and he suggests it be a male enhancement pill mm-hmm. before <laughs> viagra there was what's it called vitagex so that's when he uh takes one of the pills and pretends to be 
hungry and starts chasing a, a female secretary around and uh, she's screaming for her life and everybody's laughing including a middle-aged or elderly woman she's probably around 50 60 so she's like laughing too and i'm just like jesus christ <laughs> doesn't he do that doesn't he chase two women he chases one out of the room and then yeah. he chases another one yeah, i think so and just everybody's laughing and yeah it's just like yeah that's probably the most realistic thing yeah. in the movie because that's what people were like in the 50s and unfortunately have you still like mad men mm-hmm. oh yeah uh and then we get a really cool montage uh it's weird seeing montages in movies older movies not that they were on dancing dog not that they were uncommon because i think like singing in the rain which came out a few years before this had montages but uh i really like the montage especially it felt like a night like it was 1957 in television uh we have women singers lonesome's transformation from just like a a fake transformation from being this like sad uh, lethargic person to taking fight jacks and suddenly he's doing his iconic laugh uh, there's a cartoon of what it does to you, like in the body, like in uh, the beginning of uh, Jurassic Park. Uh, and we also see the ratings going up for his show, the audience's, uh, yeah, audience participation. We get close, close up on Lonesome's mouth at one point when he's laughing. There's also a pig cartoon commercial where the pig goes from like, oh, I don't know, to basically Lonesome Roads chasing a, a woman. A female pig and then there's a random woman in bed and they talk about how she, she says that she got a 10-year supply for her husband but and it's this gigantic bottle yeah it's like literally like a like a five gallon jug yeah but it still says 100 tablets on it no matter when you see the box or the bottle it always says 100 tablets yeah there's probably like 2,000 in there it, easily and they look like those after dinner mints mm-hmm. that like melt in your mouth not in your hands <laughs> Uh, and he goes, and now for the soft sell. And it shows like an Asian cowboy at one point. And I was just like, what is what is going on with this montage? And then the hard sell. And it's like uh, another cowboy shooting a gun. So it's a weird, cool, fun montage that I enjoyed very much. What do you think? Yeah, I'll agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> this is why Trevor's here. <laughs> to agree. All right, moving on. So add some brevity onto this. Yeah, and that's when we get introduced to uh, General Hainsworth, and they mention the senator, but uh, do we see the senator for more than, like, a few seconds? Yeah. Uh, He's the, briefly shown. Yeah, the gen- general uh, is the owner of the ad company who's pushing Vitajex, which basically means he owns the show, because back then, advertisers, I mean, still, I'm sure to this day, adverti- advertisers were uh, in control of the show. There's a fun story about Mel Blanc, the voice of most of the looney tunes original voice of the looney tunes who did radio and although we couldn't see him like the advertisers would show up for he did like a bunch of different shows with each with their own cigarette sponsor and if the sponsor showed up and he wasn't smoking their cigarette they'd get mad as if the public could actually see what he's smoking right while he's not even recording so then we get another montage so we see that uh lonesome roads is on the cover of look magazine they name a flower after him they name a ship after him they name a mountain after him mm-hmm. so it just shows the ridiculousness of like that, his popularity his fame, yeah yeah um we get a this is your life moment where we get reintroduced to beanie which is uh was a fun way to reintroduce the character mm-hmm. and uh he's hosting a telethon and he shakes a kid in a wheelchair yeah there's a lot of shaking of people in this movie mm-hmm. uh which i was like 
Is that a thing? Is that like part of your method acting to just grab someone by the face and shake their head like um, a magic eight ball? I think going off that, I think for me it was interesting to see because like during this, after the first montage, you can start to see him instead of dressing like a fucking good old boy, he starts dressing like in suits and yeah. tailored, you know, um, things. So it's interesting seeing him make that change to becoming like more quote unquote respectable, um, wearing like fancy clothes and like throwing his money around. Like when he sees Beanie, he pulls out like a, a stack of bills and starts just like, here, man, here's some money. Like, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it's obviously he's changing who he was as a person and like mm-hmm. what he stood for like the you know the transformation has become complete he's like basically like almost full megalomaniac mode yeah and that montage ends with him getting the keys to uh, the top two floors of a new york hotel was oh memphis hotel probably because i mean they show new york yeah but he seems to always be in memphis uh or at least that's where his tv station is yeah so that's his his new home for the rest of the movie he calls marcia because he's lonely even though a woman is being escorted out by beanie in that same scene and they do that thing where he press the well this case he presses the receiver against his chest to completely block the sound from uh getting in there but i don't remember that being a very efficient method of uh blocking sound yeah but it's been a while so who knows <laughs> this was also the 50s so yeah a and lot less sensitive there's just a lot of movies that do that mm-hmm. where uh, they cover up the phone and it's like oh it must automatically just do a great job of cu- of uh, blocking sound he manipulates her into coming over by saying that he's going to jump if she doesn't show up hello oh larry oh what, what time is it marcia you, you gotta come over i never should have let joy sell me on the idea of living in a penthouse over the offices 25 rooms to be alone in. I I feel like a shipwrecked fellow on an island. Oh, Larry, I know that island. It's populated by a tribe of friendly girls. Marsha, honey, do you believe me when I say it's a matter of life and death? Call me soon, doll. Huh? Larry? If you don't come, I'll dive off this balcony into the park and I'm ten blocks from the lake. I put this as another theme, but uh, I think that he he may not honestly want to jump because there's a line later about I don't see him as the jumping type, and uh, but it definitely shows that he's depressed. I mean, his addiction, his alcoholism, uh, is obviously a and his womanizing, womanizing, definitely a sign of somebody who has depression, who has um, a lot of things going on in his brain that. they're not good. I'm trying to be more eloquent with what I'm saying, but it's not coming out very well. So. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So when he talks about jumping um, and going on to the theme about, or continuing with the theme about freedom, it uh, reminded me of uh, Dark City and Wal- Wal- uh, Walensky. God, it's like, <laughs> I knew it started with a W. I knew it started with a wall and ended in a ski, but I couldn't remember the middle part. So. Walski. Anyways, so yeah, remind me of that. And when she shows up, they show the backdrop of New York or Memphis, I guess. And it was an obvious fake backdrop when he's on the balcony. Yeah, yeah. Marshall arrives and sees the evidence of a woman have been that she was in the room, so she immediately knows, and she starts kind of feeling maybe like a little silly, like she shouldn't have come over here. It's just you know, same old, same old, old with this guy. 
and he does admit to having a woman, but uh, he goes back to his acting, the subtle aspects, the the valleys of his versus the peaks of his performance of just him you know, talking about his... I think he says something to the effect of like being depressed and all that. I may not remember exactly what he says, but he does talk about the uh, TV antennas and the being a little scared of, of his power that he has. Look at all them TV arrows sticking up like branches down there. There's a whole forest up here to San Diego. Oh, I'm waiting to hear what I got to say. Is that what you woke me up in the middle of the night for? Marsha, what I'm trying to say is all the millions of people believe in it. Doing what I tell them to. It scares me. Honest. The general and all them big shots trying to educate me. Educate you or use you? That's it. See, the general says our country needs me. I'm supposed to be an influence. I know there's something big that you want to get to, but we can go back to this because I want to mm-hmm. talk about that. You can... Well, I don't necessarily have anything. Oh, yeah, I guess the, the big thing is yeah. the next thing that he says is uh, marry me, Marsha. Yeah. And she's conflicted, of course. Uh, and she tells him to don't play with me. Don't hurt me. And uh, grabs his hair because he starts like looking down like, yeah, I know. I'm not. I'm, and giving like an honest performance of like of self-awareness in that moment of like, yeah, I know I'm, I'm kind of a, an asshole and a horrible person. But so he's looking down and she like grabs his hair and forces him head up yeah forces him to look at her and it's like don't hurt me i don't remember how the the end of the scene but i know it goes into the next one in a really cool a really fun transition of the song old-fashioned marriage being sung on tv mm-hmm. so. um so i want to say that that scene where he proposes is probably my favorite scene in the movie yeah. i think it's a really beautifully uh well done scene uh it actually shows when they're out on the balcony that um lonesome is really thoughtful about what his position is like as far as so he's not completely like i said he hasn't gone completely megalomaniac um he's still thinking about you know his position and what it means to himself and the people that he's reaching so he's he still has a shred of humanity left in him it's Mm -hmm. not like all you know what can i get out of it dollars and cents kind of thing Mm -hmm. um that was definitely my favorite scene in this movie. I can't think of a single moment in this movie, though, that he's I still like, fucking hated the movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a single moment in the movie where he was, like, going, oh, yes, more money. I mean, he does negotiate for a thousand, but he also bluffs that, you know, if it doesn't work, maybe that's part of his insecurity in that scene of, like, I want to ask for more, but maybe they won't like me. Maybe there is a, a shred of, um, like I said, insecurity of him going what if they don't like me and then I'm getting 500 a week? So it's like, okay, well I'll prove myself. And if I can prove myself, then they'll, they'll give me what I, what I deserve with a thousand a week. I was going to say that I think my favorite scene is the last one, which obviously we'll get to. Um, and why hopefully within the next two hours. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, I don't remember what the other thing I was going to say was. So, uh, it goes into, like I said, transitions to old fashioned marriage, which is being sung on the TV with lonesome roads on a show. And that's when the uh, a woman shows up into the penthouse because at that point Marsha is happy like oh, I'm gonna get married to him and it's gonna be great and she's very very happy. She seems pleased with the situation. Yeah, she she seems uh, confident that this is all gonna work out. That any uh, second thoughts she had were nullified until or now that she's like okay he wants to marry me he's going to marry me so this is gonna be great. 
and that's when uh, his first wife shows up to the the penthouse, I guess. And uh, she she laughs at one point, like, because you're like, okay, is she just some money grubber, uh, some gold digger looking to uh, steal money from him and claim to be the first wife, or is she actually the first wife? And I think she laughs at some point, and it's a very similar laugh to his, and it makes you go, oh, yeah, no, she's hmm. she's definitely the first wife. <laughs> and that's another thing that, that Rhodes is trapped in, a marriage. Marriage, yeah. And she also says something about, too bad I couldn't keep him. Maybe you can keep him more lonesome than I was able to. You know, the other day I was talking about divorce, telling him you could keep like that right you think about it. Just try a little harder to see the other side of the argument. And he's something. You never mind leave a first love just to have the last word. That's a Your lonesome's new tootsie, huh? Lonesome. It's a hot one. I hope you have better luck keeping them lonesome than I did. Uh, I think you should understand that I'm just a business associate of Mr. Rhodes. Ain't you the whole box stop, though? The floor manager of your program is my brother-in-law's first cousin. He told me where I could find you. So you come off it, little lady. Uh, Marsha even lies and says that she's just a business associate, and uh, but they were engaged to be married at this point already, right? Yeah. yeah. So she's like saying she's lying, flat out lying to her. Yeah. Saying, I think she knows it too. Um, his ex-wife. Yeah, I forget her name. Was, uh, yeah, I forget it too. Uh, would have would have been nice if I wrote it down. I just I just wrote down the first Mrs. Rhodes. That's her character name, as far as I'm concerned. And she also says, I can write a book. And uses that as a threat to not divorce him, but also write a tell-all that will ruin him. But I don't think you went over what she wanted. She's blackmailing. She she gets to that. Uh, uh, no, I'm saying that you didn't go over it, but I didn't know if you were done or not. No, no, sorry. Um, yeah, she start, she blacks, blackmails him for 3000 a month, which I should have done this earlier, but I just thought of the idea of, I wonder what that is. In today's dollars. Today's dollars. So inflation has nearly... Uh, or it's more than 10 times what it was in 1957. So uh, 3000 a month now would be $30,865 a month. So that's... Jesus. That's the money. So if he was making $1,000 a week... I'm sure by this point he's making a lot more. No, I'm saying, but at $1,000 a week, how much was he actually making? No, uh, just 1000 if it's like four weeks a month. No, I'm saying <laughs> how much is the inflation? Oh, okay, the inflation, I'm sorry. Inflation. I apologize. It's probably around ten thousand. Chess is like over there yelling too. The ten thousand two hundred eighty-eight. I wasn't. No. Okay. Ten thousand dollars a week. Yeah. Nothing to sneeze at. That's no, definitely not. Quite a good chunk of change. Ten thousand yeah. dollars a week. So that'd be five hundred twenty thousand a year. Yeah. Do you know anybody who makes that much? Nope. Okay. So. If I do, I want to be your friend. <laughs> as long as you uh, invest in our podcast, please. Yeah. Uh, she starts eating eggs on toast, which I assume was it's eggs disgusting. on toast. And it was weird how she was eating it. Like she was like eating mostly egg and barely touching the toast mm-hmm. with the angle she was going at. And she was dropping it all over. Yeah. She uh, says something about eating or breaking her jaw. So maybe her jaw was broken, and that's why uh, she eats weird. 
but uh, I like how Marcia says it seems to be fine now. Yeah, because <laughs> she's a she's a talkative one. Nice fifties backhanded insult. Backhanded compliment. Yeah, kind of a compliment, but yeah. not really. It's more of an insult. Very yeah. well done. And the scene ends with the old-fashioned marriage song coming back in, and now it has a different uh, meaning behind it because mm-hmm. he's been lying to her, obviously. And uh, she tells the TV to shut up and turns it off. So we go to uh, lunch with the general, uh, talking about, or you see, you see his, uh, he's got a new theme song being played by a band. Uh, and again, we see the fake backdrop, but this time it's daytime. And he has a canned laughter machine, like canned audience reaction machine. Uh, and he's thinking about merchandising it. And he, Marsha comes up to him and talks about the first wife. And he's like, oh, no, that's just, uh, we got married in Juarez, and then we got divorced in Juarez, uh, but it didn't take, or or some weird way he says it, but basically he just needs to go back to Juarez to get it finalized, which sounds like something that a, uh, somebody who's, I want to say abusive, but somebody who's a liar would Mm -hmm. say. (laughs) You want to say anything about that before moving on to the next scene? No, basically he's just minimizing it, and at this point, do we really believe anything he's saying? I think at this point we, she definitely does. She believes it, uh, to an extent. To an extent. Yeah, she's not outright like, "Oh, you, you piece of garbage! I'm out of here." She's probably looking for an excuse to stay, stay here. Yeah. Yeah. So she and, doesn't want, and that's the thing is, she gives him throughout the entire movie. She, you know, he calls, she comes. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, she's obviously very connected to him one way or another, um, and you feel bad for her. Yeah. Her, you know, constantly coming and getting manipulated by this asshole. Yeah. I mean, it happens when you get into an abusive relationship, verbally or physically. You make make excuses to not leave. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes it's not that easy, but yeah. yeah. You go to the writer's room and they're all making fun of Lonesome's laugh. Yeah. Which is fun. They had his picture on the wall and they were throwing darts at it. Yeah. At his face. And they ask each other, why don't you quit? Hey! Welcome to the black hole of Calcutta. Well, this is one place they didn't show the general. Naturally, here you see the lepers of the great television industry. Men without faces. Why, they even slide our paychecks under the door so they can pretend we're not here. Ah. <laughs> but think of the satisfaction of being even a small cog in the great wheel of humanity known as Lonesome Roads. Ah. Ah. Yeah, huh. Sounds like she's coming over to our side. Ah, ha, ha. Why don't you quit? Why don't you quit? Because I'm deeply involved with him. Spoken like a lady. You got his introduction right? A hometown boy. Not only making good, but making everybody. Well, for a mild man, you sound vicious. Didn't you know? All mild men are vicious. They hate themselves for being mild, and they hate the windy extroverts whose violence seems to have a strange attraction for nice girls who should know better. Today, a face in the crowd takes you on a sentimental journey. As Lonesome Roads, your old Arkansas traveler goes home to the typical dirt road, cotton-picking town of Piggott, Arkansas. Go back to where he came from, the uh, Arkansas. Hold on one second before we move on to the the t- baton twirling. Uh, Mel has another really great line in that scene. He says, uh, it's dangerous power. you got to be a saint to stand all that power that little box can give you. Yeah. A little bit of a... Uh, exposition for what's happening in the story because he's certainly no saint yeah and we've established that so he's definitely he's being trapped by the box Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm 
I'm not going to make more ways than one. That's where we go back to the small town in Arkansas. Do they ever say what the name of that town is? I don't think they do. No, I don't. Uh, no, they say it. I can't remember what it is. He says it multiple times. He's judging Miss Arkansas 1957. Uh, he gets uh, attacked by young female contestants, which another theme of this movie could be a celebrity has been a, this idea that celebrity has been around forever, but the advent of television celebrity took on a, a new level never seen before around this time. Uh, this is a year after Elvis's first appearance in Ed Sullivan. Elvis and uh, the Beatles, especially, we we've i'm sure we've all seen those clips of the uh, girls just losing their mind absolute pandemonium yeah. yeah there's actually a movie made about the the beatles uh, about the fans point of view of trying to get to that taping of the beatles uh and it's robert zemeckis's first film i want to hold your hand and i have it it's on criterion so is it a documentary no no it's a uh it's a narrative uh, yeah narrative thank you so uh it's pretty good someday we'll uh we'll have it on here okay that sounds interesting mm-hmm it's pretty great. And uh, that's the first time we see... A, a, 1956 with Elvis is the first time we really see it televised, fandom televised on that level uh, of insanity and devotion of the fans and what they bring. This is also a time where teenagers start getting power. They start getting... you know they, They'll get their own jobs. And this is a very economically prosperous time in America in the, in the 50s. Yeah, where well you could... Um go to school, work mm-hmm. part-time, have a family, and still buy a house and support a family on that one salary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, your 16-year-old can buy a brand-new car. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget what we said. What I said at the beginning, how much that cost. It was, it was a new car, you said $2,100. Yeah. So, insane to think about that. And so, yeah, now the, and they're also buying the records. They're, they're starting to be an economic influence on everything at that point and uh that it shows that's one of the things that we see a lot in this movie is what i'm trying to say uh in that way this is kind of a cautionary tale about the dangers of celebrity and the influence of television and music to an extent and uh there are varying degrees of truth to that idea because tv didn't turn out to be the evil yeah like you know 90s with the video games or 80s and 90s with music where they're like it's it's the reason why kids are shooting up schools and committing suicide yeah was because of this and killing cops yeah so it wasn't to that extent with television but i think they tried to i'm sure studios tried to make try to vilify television at that point because it was taking away sales Mm -hmm. and i talk about that later in my notes just like netflix is taking away from theatrical run movies and stuff like that they're not killing it but a lot of old school directors are saying that netflix and hulu and all those places are killing Mm -hmm. theatrical experience well not netflix so much anymore because that's their their stock is going down but now with like everybody has their own streaming service you you're exactly right yeah sad yeah but we benefit because we can watch pretty much any movie we want to watch anytime yeah but i'd rather well, A, I don't want to have 15 fucking subscriptions yeah. to different things. I hate that so much. And <laughs> I don't want to lose the theatrical experience because if I oh, have no. a choice between watching a movie at home or watching it in a theater, I'd 100% rather watch it in a theater. Oh, of course. Uh, it makes it easier to focus, especially for someone like me who's like, wait, who's that person? Let me look it up real quick. Oh, yeah. Didn't know. So Rhodes is uh, judging uh, the Miss Arkansas contest, and he starts getting mesmerized by uh, this one young 
woman, we'll say. Uh, but turns out she's 17. 17-year-old woman. In fact, someone tells her that specifically that she's 17 and he's like oh yeah she's a, she's a great kid or something like that yeah he was 30 31 around this time which he seemed he looks older yeah he does look older but yeah no he was he was younger but that's still a pretty big age difference yeah anything before 17 or before 18 is a pretty big age difference mm-hmm. uh the kids are, start trampling each other i don't know like they all run to get there yeah, and you can watch kids getting, out, yeah. getting trampled over each other like i was saying it's like absolute pandemonium yeah somebody obviously got hurt in that scene and then uh the baton competition starts and they cut two old men licking their lips which is extra creepy because they're all prob they're all probably 17 the uh, one girl ooh, we find out her name is betty lou keeps looking at lonesome and De Palma sees this and smiles which is and once you see the whole movie, you kind of understand. But at the same time, he's like, oh, I know what's going on here with with uh, Lonesome and uh, this girl. This underage girl. Yeah, he's he kind of looks like he's going to help them get together. And there's a wide shot of Betty Lou throwing up her baton, and it's not the same actress. But uh, she ends up winning, and Rhodes, like, shakes her. <laughs> and she she wins because Lonesome is in charge of the judging. Yeah, he's like, he's- a unanimous vote. By me, yeah. yeah. I mean, watching the little bit of the competition that we saw, do you think she was the best one? There was one that was like really impressive. She was like flipping it around her um, her thigh. Uh-huh. I was like, wow, that's very very cool. Um, they were all all the they were all impressive. really good, but there was one that was like you thought stood above equally as good as because hers was really really good too. Yeah, like, no, I will say that. So, do I feel like she deserved to win? Yeah, absolutely. But there was someone else who did like an equally good job, so it could have gone mm-hmm. either way. And the thing that pushed her over the edge was probably the fact that they're She's seventeen playing. Well, yeah, they're <laughs> playing googly eyes with each other. Yeah, uh, and then Betty Lou talks about how she idolized Rhodes. We cut to an upscale bar. I don't. Uh, Rhodes isn't. They talk about how Rhodes is like out of town and he's in Juarez. And he's going to get that divorce. We get a cameo from singer Burl Ives, who's best known uh, to our generation as Sam the Snowman from Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, the uh, Rankin Bass one from the sixties, the claymation one. Yeah. So that uh, I don't know snowman that opens up. Oh, that's right. I forgot. For your childhood, you watched Taxi Driver, Taxi Driver, <laughs> and shit like that. Uh, yeah, you didn't have a typical childhood. I did not. Uh, they make jokes about drinking. Marsh is pretty happy about her imminent marriage with Rhodes, and uh, Mel talks about how he hates Rhodes. I suppose I should be a gentleman. Wish you all the happiness. I think I'll just be a cat and hope he chokes on a Vitajex pill. He definitely has a lot of vitriol towards uh, towards Lonesome. Or Larry. I think rightfully so. Yeah, um, of course. Because it's pretty obvious that Mel has feelings for Marcia. 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 called her Patricia. You know, I didn't think about that, but in retrospect, yeah. He, I can definitely he, see that. He defends her... Her honor? Yeah, constantly and tells her what a piece of shit that um, Larry is or Lonesome. And uh, Marcia smiles and kisses Mel on the cheek thinking he's joking and her expression changes when she realizes he isn't which is kind of uh with her duality of yes i know this person is toxic to put it in modern terms again but you know there's that trance there there's something that she can't get away from 
and uh, she starts to second guess herself. So we go to the airport as uh, I, I'm guessing, I assume, because we see all the um, Miss Arkansas contestants show up, with, or they're on the same plane with uh, Rhodes, and somebody's hanging out of the, the window. It looks like she's uh, flying the plane. <laughs> she's yeah. like in the cockpit. Yeah, she's hanging out the pilot's window like, hey, everybody, uh, like a dog. <laughs> on the highway and uh betty lou i thought I, I thought it was maybe betty lou but it might not have been and uh, dozens of girls will start rushing the, the plane so she goes through the crowd and gets to the front and tries to get past security but they stop her and she goes i'm his fiance and so she does actually break through the crowd soon after we find out that uh betty lou and lonesome got married and that's in mexico in mexico in juarez so he probably did get the divorce but only to get married to somebody else and of course, she's crushed, and she goes back into the crowd, being a, a metaphor for her being just another face in the crowd, or just another uh, woman. Yeah, or one of those girls, the fangirls. Fangirls, no one uh, special. And but she does have trouble escaping for a second. So she does goes back to the uh, the theme I've been talking about about freedom or lack thereof. So she's trying to escape him, and having she's having trouble. And Betty Lou gets mobbed, and someone asks her what her measurements are. I don't know if you notice this also, but when they're they're taking photos of her when she's coming down the steps of the the plane, mm-hmm. um, I can't remember his name. The fucking sleazy agent guy, Joey De Palma. He like pulls up her dress a little bit because she has her legs crossed, and he pulls up her legs yeah. so she shows, uh, pulls up her skirt up her legs so she's showing like a little bit more leg. You didn't notice that? Well, I, I noticed that, but I think I remembered it to being like him helping her cover up. But no, he's pulling it up. Okay. So it's yeah. like the opposite. And then even Lonesome comes and he like yells at the photographer, like, hey, what the hell are you trying to do? And like, yeah. pushes him away. This is a 17-year-old girl. And they're, obviously she's already become you know sexualized, but this yeah. is just awful. Yeah. That's- and then someone hurts. She comes and she has two tiny little chihuahuas in her arms what are their names tico and pico or something something like that yeah tico and pico and and one of them yelps and so what what happens in that sorry i interrupted you, you were about to say i don't know i don't know what happens to the dog you don't like it's not like someone like does something um that's very obviously putting the dog mm. in pain but the dog didn't like it yeah obviously i uh, saw so, yeah but it's done in real time yeah. if you look closely you'll notice it yeah so when she gets asked about her measurements that kind of shit still goes on today because mm-hmm. when they do like press junkets for avengers movies everybody's asking all the male actors basic questions you know character stuff you know how cool it is it is to be a superhero you know all these the stuff you would just ask a person who's in a superhero movie but a lot of people ask scarlett johansson about exercising in order to get into the suit constantly so it's obviously something that they very that's very problematic probably yeah, problematic but very relevant still today of just people seeing women as objects as objects about their bodies yeah. and less about their their minds or their or talents talents yeah now were you able to wear undergarments if you're you the, like the fifth person that's asking well, no, because it, what is going on <laughs> What? Since when did people start asking each other about in interviews no, about their no, underwear? No, because it is such a skin tight. Here's I'll why. leave it up to your imagination. Oh, uh, <laughs> see, okay? is, is that whatever you feel like I should be wearing or not wearing under that costume? This is not a. Is what I. W- w- it, it, well, is, well, is uh, it inappropriate to ask somebody what kind of underpants they wear? I didn't ask you what kind. 
You just asked me if I was wearing any. You're obviously Scarlett Hansen, so you probably mm. don't have the same body worries as the rest of us. But did, was there a bit of you that thought, oh my God, that's tight? First of all, every woman has body worries. I mean, um, I'm not uh, exempt from that. My father likes you, my boyfriend likes you, like all of men like you. So how does it, yes. yeah, how does it feel being this? I finally got them, all generations. <laughs> um, I... I love my male audience. I, I'm always happy to, uh, to you know, put out films that, that garner a good response from a strong male audience, you know? But um, I have to say that it's more flattering to me when I have girls that come up to me and they go, oh, I love that movie. I think girls really, we like, we want to, we want kind of um, the approval of other girls. I think a lot of times guys think that we dress for them and you know all that stuff, but it's really not true. We actually just do it for our, for girls. I think. Really? <laughs> I think so. I think so. I way rather have my girlfriends say, "Ooh, that's a cute dress," than have a guy go, "Oh, I like your dress." She's talented. I mean, she she's very talented with that baton. With the baton, yeah. That's all we see so far. <laughs> she always lights it on fire. Yeah, that's yeah. Two ends. So they have like this televised uh, show wedding in the next scene and uh he shows off betty lou but the crowd of women are still losing their minds uh but they do cut every once in a while to a group of women and uh they're like bawling their eyes out like um in that scene in, i don't know if you remember beauty and the beast at all i mean you didn't really remember lion king so probably not but uh gaston's gonna go propose to bell and they're these three uh women who are very much into him and they're bawling their eyes out so it's kind of like that yeah marsha's watching at home and she's obviously depressed uh rhodes gets mobbed again and they have a little striptease of the 17 year old <laughs> yes. which was like okay he talks about this is the reason that i married her like this is one of the reasons why i can't stop looking at yeah. her or looking at this so he starts with ripping off her blouse which reveals like a, a sparkly bra type thing and then he and then he, this is the thing that really keeps me coming back yeah. and then he rips off her bottoms and then she's wearing like a, basically like a, a like a like a swimsuit a bottom is it i, I don't no, remember it's like exactly. a swimsuit bottom yeah basically again objectifying her mm -hmm. like the true white trash or piece of shit that he is yeah he's also still playing to the crowd i mean i'm but so there glad are all women in there yeah like all the crowd well i mean there's cameras too but uh which are which is the real power but you know they don't do that anymore they don't have underage girls dressed in scantily clad uh, outfits to perform things anymore no that was such a thing of 65 years ago but i'm wondering i'd like to believe that kazan um and uh i forget and bud i forget his last name the, the writer of this that they were going look how despicable this mm -hmm. idea is instead of just going oh yeah sure whatever because i feel like they probably wouldn't have had that go on if they felt like this there was nothing wrong with it no yeah it's i mean the movie is the entire movie is satire so i feel like they have to be making a statement because like with the rest of you know political quote-unquote statements that they're making in this movie like there have to be commenting on that yeah i agree hopefully <laughs> hopefully yeah that's when she does her fire baton twist or twirl uh and the general is possibly pulling out of lonesome roads uh show uh and his i think it's his i forgot i didn't rec recognize who it was at first so i think it's his agent 
or uh, maybe just this connection at Vitajex or whatever the advertising company is. And the guy's like, please, you need to like help me. You need to make sure that this contract between the two of you sticks. Otherwise, I'm going to lose my job and I have kids in college. And he's like taking a pill that might be Vitajex, might not be. And then he passes out. Mr. Rhodes, uh, Mr. Rhodes, could I talk to you for up. just a few minutes, please? I told you I didn't want you agents and jokers nagging well, around me on this program. Important. Mr. Rhodes, I, I've been with Browning Slagan McNally for 17 years in full charge of the International oh. Drug Account. And the general just told me that he's taking his business away. Your young Mr. De Palma has wormed his way in. Look, Macy, Joe De Palma's doing one heck of a job for me. But it's you know, this department. business, it, it, it's, it's, it's cutthroat. If a, Look, Macy. If a, well, if a, a rating those dives, or if you lose a client, even if it isn't your fault, the account executive is the code. Mr. Rhodes, if, uh, if I lose this account, I'll be uh, fired. I've got a son in Princeton now. Uh, Rhodes, you, you've seen my, you've seen my uh, office, a corner office with four windows. Do you know how long it takes the Browning Slagle and Ganali to get a corner? I think he mentioned something about nitroglycerin. Yeah, something like that. So I think he was overdosed on that. Yeah. Uh, but it just shows, I mean, he, he freaks out when he passes out, but you can tell that even if it meant saving someone's job that he was like eh well whatever at that point uh, which would the lonesome roads at the beginning of the movie do that the one who helped the woman get her house or would he or is this a different uh, a transformed uh, lonesome at this point yeah i would say so he's past the point of no return yeah Rhodes and uh marcia have another scene together and he says to her that i was afraid to marry you and she's like first you said you were afraid not to and now you're saying you're afraid to marry me so like, this is like classic like gaslighting mm-hmm. just like going back and forth with her just giving her reasons as to why and he's full of shit so. of course because you know he thought he wasn't thinking with his heart or his brain at that moment he was thinking with uh, his hunger We'll just keep calling it that. Uh, and she's obviously upset, and I broke down ten. Oh, so he offers her ten percent. Like you don't have to do anything. I'll give you ten percent of everything from now on, and you don't have to like ever work again. And she's like, "No, fuck you. I help make you. I'm getting fifty percent." Yeah, and she screams at him, yeah. which is awesome. It's such a great scene. Look, Marshall, I'm not forgetting what I owe you. I'm going to give you a healthy slice of our whole operation. Say 10% of my end, and you won't have to lift your finger with what I'm giving you. Giving me? Giving me? You're not giving me anything. And you're not throwing me off the train like poor Abe Steiner, either. Facing the crowd was my idea. The whole idea of lonesome roads belongs to me. I always should have been an equal partner. Well, now I'm going to be an equal partner. I'm going to get something I deserve. Don't sound like you, Marsha. And I want it on paper! Okay. All right. I'll tell Joey to drop the papers. Put yourself in the mirror, Marsha. You'll see a millionaire. And he, he kind of like, okay. He, he reluctantly agrees to it. And again, to the subtle, the valley of his, his perf- the valleys of his performance, he says, um, well, uh, you're going to be a, a millionaire now. 
He said, look in the mirror, you'll see a oh, millionaire. Yeah. yeah, that's a great line. Yeah. And uh, she lets out this like weird little whimper as the scene ends, but I mean, it might, it sounded kind of weird, but that's the kind of weird sounds that we make when we're upset and we're not caring about sounding, you know. Cool or funny. Or yeah. So I thought it was very natural. Uh, and then we get introduced to Mike Wallace as himself. And it's like, holy shit, that dude was old. Yeah. Uh, he passed away about 10 years ago, which I, I forgot about. But yeah, he's he's been around a while. Rest in peace with George Lucas. <laughs> George Lucas. Uh, are you talking about the like the interview? What? With, no. There's like an interview with George Lucas where he said he sold his franchise to white slavers, meaning Disney. Hmm. You have to put it behind you. And it's a very, very, very hard thing to do. But you have to just cut it off and say, okay, end the ballgame. I got to move on. And everything in your body says, don't, you can't. And these are my kids. So All those Star Wars films. All the Star Wars films. They were your kids. Yeah, well, they are my, you know, I, I love them. I created them. Um, I'm very intimately involved in them. And obviously to and sell them off. And you sold them. I sold them to the white slavers that take these things and... and uh, <laughs> okay, George Lucas said that? Yeah. Interesting. It's weird, uh, weird weird shit with that man uh but apparently he donated all the money he made uh selling star wars so mike wallace asks him about Rhodes uh helping oh yeah he's not he's uh talking to senator fuller at this point and he asks him if Rhodes is going to help him become president that's what the next scene is it's a screen room and uh, senator fuller is giving like a speech but beanie falls asleep and uh when it's over, everybody's just like, eh, I don't know, because they just did everything the way that you're supposed to do as a, a politician. Mm-hmm. And Give political answers, like, very straightforward, bland, mm-hmm. black and white kind of thing. And so that's when uh, Rhodes, he threatens to leave, but he gets this idea of, like, oh, we'll do this. And uh, he, he refers to Beanie as basically a representative of the common folk of uh the audience and beanie's just like obviously he fell asleep during it so he i forget does he say anything specific like any fun little quotes about what he thought about it i don't think so now beanie what did you think of the personality you just saw on the screen (laughs) well i uh come on give it to us straight flatter than last night's beer Oh, he does refer to Fuller as a product. So that's where we get into this idea that everything's a product. Lonesome Roads is a product. Uh, Fuller politicians are, are products, uh, not just the physical things that we go to buy at a store because we're buying things with our time. We're voting for people, and that's our way of like buying politicians, um, which actually that phrase means something else entirely, but I won't get into that political stuff. I calls uh, Beanie stupid and a bush monkey. And if you've looked at what a bush monkey looks like, he kind of does look like a bush monkey. <laughs> I don't know what a bush monkey looks like. Let me see. Uh, while you're looking that up, I'll say that he calls, he's, he's saying that he's a representative. <laughs> That's funny. Of, uh, he's representative of the common folk and a, uh, he calls, but he also calls Beanie stupid. So he kind of in, inadvertently calls the public stupid, not to their face, obviously. Of course not. Uh, and he says something about, oh, the fuller says he has a cat and he's like no you need a dog the public loves dogs which is funny because socks the cat was uh, clinton's clinton's uh cat and uh, he got elected pretty easily so 
I love cats, but I prefer dogs. This is three years before the first pres uh, televised presidential debate between Kennedy and Nixon, and Nixon lost it because he was like sweating his ass off. I think he was sick, right? I don't know if he was necessarily sick, but they. I think they did it on purpose. The uh, television studio, the whoever was directing it, because he looked, he didn't look clean shaven. He was sweating. Um, voice act nervous yeah voice actor billy west refers to it as or like he saw it as a kid and he's like said to his mom mom i think he's like turning it into a werewolf hmm. which is why when he performs nixon on futurama he ends it with oh like he's changing into a, a wolf there's your futurama <laughs> trivia for the day fun fact so yeah so i think it's interesting that they're talking about what is going to become standard like how to present yourself as a product on television and uh i think that's where he comes up yeah he comes up with the idea about uh having something called like lonesome roads cracker barrel which is the southern variation of a soapbox so he's able to just go on tv and just talk about anything and while he's on there he can have senator fuller come in pretend like he's just he's on the same level one of the good old boys yeah, one of the good old boys and uh, on the same level as uh, lonesome and that goes to the whole public persona of a politician the way they sell them as somebody that uh, the people want to uh, vote for kind of reminds me of when all the people voted for george bush while saying well he seems like somebody i'd lo love to have a beer with which is a stupid Wait, hold on you know someone who said that I don't know anybody specifically, but I remember a lot of people back in Because uh, that was 2000. literally one of my friends said those exact words. Mm -hmm. And then I remember my dad was like, dude, this is the person who's supposed to be running the country. Like, don't yeah. you want someone who's like a little bit more like educated and someone better than like someone you would just like to have a beer with? Well, that's the uh, appeal to Trump supporters of Trump, uh, that he's somebody who uh, speaks his mind. Fuck? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Speaks his mind. So that's what they want. Uh, all these voters uh, want somebody who they can relate to, who seems down to earth, who doesn't seem like a squeaky clean politician, like uh, somebody who's boring. Uh, and this was in 1957 when, again, they hadn't even televised a presidential debate yet, not for another three years. So it's pretty crazy. Uh, Rhodes does tell the general to shut up at one point because he's thinking. And he also calls himself a force. And then he also threatens to take his idea elsewhere. When the first episode of Lonesome Roads Cracker Barrel begins, uh, Senator Fuller joins them. And like I said, he's acting like he's a good old boy. I forget. Oh, they hand him an apple to start eating. Yeah. So he walks in eating an apple just yeah. to make him more relatable. Yeah, exactly. Man, politicians eat apples too. He eats apples. I eat apples. He's just like me. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Mel and Marsha are at a bar. Marsha is now smoking, which he uh, Mel references the fact that I've never seen you do that before. So now she's taken on smoking to show her uh, deterioration as a person. And Mel mentions that he's writing a book about Rhodes, and he's about to, he's there to sign a contract uh, with a publisher. I'm assuming. Well, how's our old station in Memphis? I didn't go near it. I've been writing a book about. I call it demagogue and denim. Never had such a good time in my life. Well, you look wonderful. All those months he was calling me Vanderbilt 44 and frontal lobe. 
when I should have been punching him in the nose. Well, now I got the book to punch him in the nose. Think it'll be published? Came up to sign the contracts. Publishers are real high on it. They think the time is right to pull a mask off him. Let the public see what a fraud he really is. Well, I wouldn't say that. What would you say? Well, it's, it's, it's just that it's harder for him to be as simple as he was with all those generals and senators and political big shots hanging around him all the time. Marsha's still making excuses for Lonesome, despite what he did to her, because she, she should have been done a long time ago. But at this point, she should definitely have been done with him. And she's not. She's still making excuses. She's what is it, Stockholm Syndrome. Yep, exactly. She still has that hold on him. She still has the connection to him. Hoping, wishing maybe he'll change and fat chance of that happening. And Mel says to her at one point, I've spared you more than you've spared yourself. Which I thought in the context of that scene was a great line. He, he uh, Mel has a lot of the great lines in the movie because mm-hmm. he's like kind of the voice of reason yeah he's the voice of reason and he's, he's a smart ass so it's always well, yeah. <laughs> it's always good he's the uh he's the well, i was gonna say punchline, but he's the like that punch at the end of uh, a scene to uh, drive home the point Rhodes gets home and he's and we see two silhouettes leaving his room one obviously being his wife and the other one turns out to be our friend de palma who uh was sleeping with his wife which is like yikes i like how, how they introduced that idea that she's cheating like he has his back to the uh, the wall yeah, and you see figures in the background yeah multiple to go yep that's not supposed to be happening so first he tries to play it off like he was just helping her with something and then yeah. he's walking him down and getting closer and he's like are you gonna hit me or he said you can't hit me or something like that yeah and then he just outright doesn't even deny it he yeah he's like you can't are you gonna hit me you can't hit me because he starts blackmailing him mm-hmm. saying i i'm like a 51 percent shareholder in your company uh and i mean he did set him up with uh everything that's going on then Rhodes fires him and he's like you can't fire me i'm in bed you're in bed with me he says that like a few times and then Rhodes fires betty which is such a strange concept of him firing his wife because she, she is on the show but at they're married mm-hmm. so the idea of just being like you're fired it's such a uh, metaphor but i was looking for a different word than metaphor um it shows how he everett's probably yelling right now. it shows how he's a uh, become desensitized to the idea that you know this was the love of his life so much that he got married and he's just, just caesar as an employee now says you're fired and he also sends her back home and uh rea- and she reacts like a kid the kid that she is yeah by crying and running to her room crumpling on the, uh, crumpling up on the bed yeah crying and i think i'm not 100 percent sure but i think the music in the background is an instrumental m- instrumental version of old-fashioned marriage which was just like a you know chef's kiss <laughs> <laughs> little cherry on top of that scene and then so where does Rhodes go he goes back to marcia even though she's like i mean she's still making excuses but she's just like what the fuck because Rhodes is like banging on her door it's super early in the morning he's very obviously drunk yeah of course like more drunk than we've ever seen him yeah it's the most wasted he is he calls himself a king while he's knocking and he's like lonesome's back he's like acting like this is like what she's always wanted mm-hmm. um like she's doing her a favor yeah like he's, he's doing her a favor yeah 
and uh, he even tells her, he, like, he goes to sit down on the bed, and he starts undressing himself like they're going to have sex, and he even tells her to make him a drink, which is like, Jesus Christ, the fucking gall on this, this dude person. to come in, yeah. It's like, if you had any sympathy for him before, he just, like, gone. immediately, because, like, one of my favorite things about A Clockwork Orange, and such a random thing, but Alex is one of the most unlikable characters of all time. He's he's mesmerizing to watch, but he's one of the most unlikable characters because, you know, he rapes, he kills, and... Treats his parents like shit. Treats, yeah, treats his parents like shit. Um, I'm guessing it's all commentary on teenagers. And uh, he goes through some torture, the well-deserved torture, with the, the you know, probably the most iconic shot in the movie with the uh, the eyeballs and all that. And it breaks him down as a person. But when he gets home to his parents, and he's just like, he wants to go to his, he wants to live in his old room, and it's taken by someone else, and his parents are like, tough. In that moment, I feel bad for him, despite what he's all, what he's done. When this character, this moment in the movie, before, right before this moment, before he's banging on the door, you can maybe kind of start feeling bad for him. It's like, oh, you know, that sucks for him. But then he just immediately makes sure that you don't feel any sympathy for him because he jumps into that you know banging down on the door going back to her because he feels like he can do that yep and fortunately he can't even though i think there's a lot of uh conflict in her in the scene and marcia uh one of the most distressing things is the fact that he lays down in bed and then she starts to get on top of him Mm -hmm. and he's like oh i'm tired so not only does she fall for it again he rebuffs her again and basically tells her like oh i'm too tired to have sex with you turn off the light leave me alone (laughs) like i that's what one thing i didn't understand he was like he was getting undressed and it looked like he was like trying to get ready to have sex with her and then she looks like she's ready and then he's like oh never mind so i'd like i didn't understand that was he was his intention to try to have sex with her or was he just getting undressed to go to bed he was probably thinking oh let's just have sex but then he like really thought about it and instead of being like i mean i'm trying to think of, i'm trying to word it so it doesn't come off in the wrong way i but like maybe he feels like he has such control over her like oh no we'll just do it later because i'm sure there'll be plenty of opportunities to do it later right now i just want to yeah. i'm just tired you know i just want to go to sleep he also talks about getting another divorce and the senator and basically saying like now that i'm getting another divorce now i'll, I'll marry you and uh, he talks about how the senator is probably going to make him a cabinet member um i forget what he says what position yeah like public um, ra- relations public, yeah something like that secretary of public relations or public public interests or something like that uh, i put down he's probably drunk which you mentioned and i said but i also wrote not just on alcohol but his own arrogance and he's covering up his depression and embarrassment with his pride. Uh, he laughs at one point. This time when he laughs, it's like nails on a chalkboard more than ever. Because now it's like this evil, maniacal laugh compared to before. The You know, like I said, it was iconic. And before it was like, uh, I forget what I said with, at first. But yeah, so at this point, it's evil and maniacal versus uh, before. He talks about how his ratings are higher than ever. And he talks about how the people who are going to vote for his uh, Fuller's followers are uh, fighters for Fuller. And he tells Marsha what he thinks of his followers, which obviously isn't very positive. Uh, she sh- he also shakes Marsha's head and then starts to kiss her chest and uh, says something about, you made me, Marsha. 
that makes her quickly realize that yes she in fact has created a monster and this is all her fault and uh, she has this insane look on her face and he looks at for a second she like looks at his lips like she wants to kiss him but then she escapes and he you know she gets on top of him even yeah she gets on top of him but then that's when he says that like hey i'm tired like turn off the light and then that's when she she bolts yeah i didn't realize i must have missed him saying yeah never mind about sex so maybe that's what breaks her out of the trance i was hoping that it'd be her just coming to her own Mm-mm. her own mind it, was, her own, it uh, had to be him hurting her again for the fifth fucking time yeah to say you know what? yeah no this guy's a piece of shit yeah and so she escapes but just by running without saying like get out or whatever uh and then this that classic old movie music sting mm-hmm. which is the first time i think that's heard in the entire in the entire movie because i remember it like jolted me out of the movie i was like mm-hmm. oh that's like that's the first time that i've heard like score yeah it's like maybe like a victory cheer like she's done it she's left she's broken free and she kind of does she's still trapped in a way says tonight's show is going to be a mess somebody says something about the show tonight going to be a mess i'm guessing it's lonesome because Marsha never showed up and he starts yelling at his staff and now he's pretty much at his meanest mm-hmm. in the movie especially yells at the secretary the show begins Marsha finally shows up and she's like shaking i don't know if you noticed that when she's i don't know if when she walks in or if she's once she sits down but uh she sits next to or stands next to the uh, sound guy who hands her a cigarette it looked like you might have said you were gonna say something <clears throat> i was gonna say i did notice that that she was shaking which it was also raining wasn't it when it, she left yeah yeah i think so, so she comes in and she's like wet and yeah. cold so that's why she's sh- i mean obviously and she's very distressed so yeah. those will add up to shaking yeah I, I like the pace of the scene because he's angry and he keeps they keep cutting back between lonesome roads and larry being an asshole because they keep like switching back and forth between him talking to everybody and like then, while they're on a commercial break yeah and starts losing his mind on people talks about how he uh, he he lies for fuller at some point of course uh, marsha learns how the volume control guy works because she keeps watching the volume control guy like turn down his microphone and so you're like going oh man and then uh, the the uh engineer even says like if they can if they ever heard how that psycho really talks so it's like okay so it's kind of it's building up it's going back and forth we know what she really wants to do and that's when she turns on his microphone. Oh, if they ever heard the way that psycho really talks. Choreography, Don Krantz. Scenic design, James Fitzsimmons. Costumes by Robert Hodes. Unit manager, George K. George. This really sell that stiff as a man among men? Are those morons out there? Yeah. I can take chicken fertilizer instead of some caviar. I can make them eat dog food and I think it's steak. Sure, I got them like this. You know what the public's like. A cage full of guinea pigs. Good night, you stupid idiot. Good night, you miserable slob. <laughs> There are a lot of trained seals. I toss them a dead fish and they'll flap their flippers. <laughs> well, Joe, <laughs> 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 
And when I heard that, the first thing that came to my mind was, can you take a guess? I don't know. I'm sure I'll be like, oh, yeah. once you say it. Um, the Simpsons when Gabbo, um, do you know that episode with the ventriloquist doll, Gabbo? He takes like... I'm, I, if it's in the first 14 oh, seasons, I've definitely yeah. seen it. He takes the place of Krusty and uh, basically he does the same thing after the cameras are off. He says, that all haul those little SOBs. <laughs> and then Bart turns the camera on when he says it. And he's like, he's like, Gabbo, I really wish you wouldn't call them SOBs. And he was like, what? That's what they are. They're all SOBs. We'll be back after this commercial for Gabo Airlines. And cut. That ought to hold the little SOBs. Gabo, quiet. Oh, I wouldn't want to offend the little SOBs. I wish you'd stop saying that. Hmm. <laughs> hey, boyo, what's so funny? Well, it's... Nah, you wouldn't be interested. It's too lowbrow. No, I'm quite lowbrow. <laughs> well, somebody just wrote a body limerick on the men's room wall. This I gotta see! All the kids in Springfield are SOBs. Gabbo's kind of language has no place on or off TV. And that's my two cents. <laughs> that ought to hold those SOBs. <laughs> what the? And he films it, and I was like thinking that when I saw that. I was like, oh, that's, that's straight out of The Simpsons. Probably what it, no, I mean, it, the, the Simpsons took that. No, no, I think reference. The Simpsons came out first. <laughs> I, let me. That was one of the things uh, in that podcast I listened to, Unspooled, when they talk about the top 100 movies, the, the list from Amphi. Mm -hmm. um, they always mentioned a reference to the movie from the simpsons because pretty much they reference every single one of those those movies um so it's really cool to see that they even reference this yeah so everybody's watching them and it keeps showing the public which i like that they keep cutting back to the public and their response to it because otherwise it would have made the movie feel a lot smaller like it was just it's it's good to see the the cause and effect of um the the action reaction of what's going on in the movie of his what he's doing and and then cutting back to the people and i think that's a really great touch especially with his character and talking about the audience constantly and the the public to see the public reacting and you know with all the crowds reacting with the john q public out there falling for his manipulative ways I don't know why I said that like that, but there you go. So then uh, Marsha's like hysterical. But she's like, they need to... She likes, she's screaming something. I forget what she's screaming exactly. Um, but I love that he leaves and immediately goes into an elevator. And it's like the most obvious metaphor for what's going on. is like straight down the Lonesome Roads Express. Uh, all the way down, he says. And as he's going down, calls are coming in. His reputation is plummeting like he is physically doing at that moment. Sponsors are pulling out. De Palma uh, already has a replacement. And he also shakes that guy's head. Um, hmm. and, uh, and it's another country bumpkin. Yeah. Yeah. To replace him with. And uh, they also show a printing press of uh, Variety Magazine, mm -hmm. which was really cool. I was yeah. like, oh. Uh, that's i didn't realize that's how it was still back in 1957 yeah. we go back to the booth who uh marsh is still in there and that's when uh mel shows up uh, and asks her if uh, he she's i've heard you just wrote the ending of my book <laughs> which i was like oh, this guy this guy's yeah. perfect see he gets all the good lines yeah when he when he shows up the phone's ringing and it's Rhodes. Uh, he's flipping out and he says, I'll, I'll see if she's here. Cause he wants to talk to Marsha cause he doesn't know that she's the one who did it. And, uh, his, he's surrounded by servants, well-dressed, uh, men. And, uh, well, 
they're all black, which there's a reason why I bring Come that up. Play. One of the servants smiles, so Rhodes loses it on that person. Like, you guys are all laughing at me. And that's when you see that he's really, like, addic- his new addiction is the attention and the love that the public was giving him. Because uh, he goes up to one of them and he starts shaking him. He's like, say you're going to love me. Say you're going to love me. And I'm like, if that is not the most obvious parallel with Trump, then I don't know what it is because it's obvious that he craves that that level that of love. adoration. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Marsha's also hearing it over the phone, so it's kind of like he's saying it to her, uh, which was I thought a nice touch. <laughs> Again, he shakes and hugs the servant, and then and then he starts kicking them out, and he says something that I'm like, is he saying that because like the way they're dressed, or is it because he, it's a racist remark? But he says to them, "Get out, you dressed up black monkeys." Yeah, that's calling a black person a monkey is, is definitely a racial. Yeah, but also he's you know they're wearing the monkey suit. You know the tuxedo has been referred to that too. So I'm like, is that's that a double entendre then? Yeah. So but it definitely was not meant to be a not a gesture of goodwill. Yeah. Well, of course not. Either way, um, I'm really, I'm gonna believe it wasn't a race thing because of the rest of the movie. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised. He thinks it's the audio engineer that did it, and he threatens to jump again. If you don't come right away, I'll jump! I'll jump! 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 Get out of my life! Get out of everybody's life! (laughs) That's probably one of my favorite moments of her performance, where she just, like, loses on him, like, screaming at him, I want to be free from you, you asshole. Mel thinks uh, she should tell... Oh, so Mel's like, I think you need to tell him to his face because otherwise he's going to blame somebody else. If you don't, then you'll never be free of him. So let's go over there. And so they go to Rhodes and just interrupt me at any point if you want to add anything to what I'm saying. Didn't she tell him then jump like when she's there at the apartment? No, it's it was over, it the, was phone. over the phone. Yeah. At least that's how I have it written down. Yeah, you're probably right. So they get to Rhodes' penthouse, and he's like giving a, an impassioned speech uh, to a fake public. The uh, canned audience comes back into play because Beanie is like there. He's like he keeps yelling at Beanie to hit the switch when he wants it to, which comes into play at the end of the the scene. Uh, someone says he's been screaming like that for 20 minutes. I love how his shadow is over the table, and that's what they see first, and not actually him. He doesn't notice Marsha for for a bit, but then he starts to cry, and we see a banner on the wall that says, There's nothing as trustworthy as the ordinary mind of the ordinary man. Lonesome Rhodes. I noticed that his uh, little LR Mm -hmm. thing looks like a branding. Yeah. uh, Cattle brand. So maybe an awesome reference to him being a product or a brand. He uh, starts singing Free Man in the Morning again, because that's... His first song, right? His first song, that's what he wants to be. And he kind of is, but he's, he isn't at the same time. Uh, and everybody is freed of his spell, and he's lost all his power. And then he finally notices that Marsha's there. He has a plan to win back the audience. He's, uh, so he's obviously delusional, but it goes back to that, what we were talking about earlier, just like, I'll tell them that I was seeing who was really listening. And that's kind of the, that's the same stuff that he was doing with Marsha, was making excuses, and she believed him. It reminds me of uh, somebody saying it's just locker talk, you know? <laughs> that's just the way that's, boys talk. Yeah, it's just how men talk. Behind closed doors. Marsha finally admits to it being her. Lonesome doesn't hear her first. 
and then suddenly uh, he does and he looks like the devil like really like we're talking about in uh, place beyond the pines how uh, ben mendelson looked ghoulish mm-hmm. and the same thing happened here and she tells him flat out i'm telling you so you'll never call me again which is great to see her finally stand up and say no i want out i'm done yeah I'm not running away from you i'm about to leave but so then Rhodes gets all depressed and he stops screaming and uh obviously marsh is upset and she even apologizes to him so you're like oh come on <laughs> uh so she's still a little trapped but uh that's when mel stands in and gives probably my favorite that whole scene's my favorite scene in the movie the last scene but he gives this whole speech and the, he's they're at the elevator she's pushing the button like crazy to try to get the door open and mel i think Rhodes says something about i'll be on tv again just just you wait and see i'll be on tv or something like that listen i'm not through yet you know what's gonna happen to me suppose i tell you exactly what's gonna happen to you you're gonna be back in television only it won't be quite the same as it was before There'll be a reasonable cooling off period and then somebody will say, why don't we try them again in an inexpensive format? People's memories aren't too long. And you know, in a way, he'll be right. Some of the people forget and some of them won't. Oh, you'll have a show. Maybe not the best hour in the top 10, maybe not even in top 35, but you'll have a show. Just won't be quite the same as it was before. And a couple of new fellas will come along, and pretty soon a lot of your fans will be flocking around them. And then one day somebody will ask, whatever happened to, uh, what's his name? You know, the one who was so big. The number one fella a couple of years ago. He was famous. How can we forget a name like that? Oh, by the way, have you seen uh, Barry Mills? I think he's the greatest thing since Will Rogers. It's great speech. Very great. And as he finishes it, he yells to Beanie to hit the switch. Beanie fell asleep, but uh, he hits the switch. So it's like uh, an audience giving him the, the last applause. Then we go downstairs, and that's when he, you can hear him yelling from his balcony, don't leave me. Marcia stops and looks back, kind of worried that maybe he will jump. Because I think he even says he's going to jump. Mel says, mm-hmm. he's, I don't think he's the jumping type or something like that. And I was kind of hoping that he would have to like just land yeah like, i thought he was gonna, yeah but i guess in 1957 they that can't show that sort of thing too shocking yeah because that goes back to the haste code thing i was talking about mel says that they were all taken in including himself and what makes them stronger is that they're able to the two of them are able to leave they're breaking free from lonesome road and marcia and mel get into the taxi and leave and there's a really cool coca-cola ad neon sign and then it says the end um I wanted to, I have a whole thing about the Hays Code, but I don't want to go into it too much. Do you know what the the Hays Code is? Mm-hmm. It's a form of censorship that they had. Uh, it's like a code of decency in movies, so certain things couldn't be shown, that couldn't be talked about. Um, even in comedies, uh, like the Marx Brothers, they had stuff cut out, so even when you watch them now, it's kind of like, what? Like, the cuts yeah. don't make sense because they had to cut from the original. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's from 1934 to 1968. Uh, now we have the rating system, G, PG, PG-13, but back then it was just pass or non-pass. Uh, in order to pass, you couldn't have nudity, adultery, bashing of Christian religions, scenes involving childbirth, homosexuality, interracial couples, 
Uh, criminals uh, should never be the heroes. No illegal drug use. Uh, and they also had weird rules like one foot on the floor during bedroom scenes. No white slavery. Hmm. <laughs> and di- uh, Interesting. Indecent dance. And indecent dances are prohibited. Uh, no branding of animals, which is a, a good rule to have. And uh, no selling women or uh, no STDs mentioned. And this is all put in place thanks to the Catholic Church, of course. And the big rule and the reason I bring this up is because that the bad guy loses at the end, which was uh, something that had to happen. So if you watch certain movies in those times, if they passed, the bad guy never won. And I'm sure suicide was probably on that list. But uh, so. yeah. So that is the movie. Should uh, everyone see this? I definitely say yes, of course. Uh, my favorite two things about this movie are the performances and how prophetic it is. Make sure to really hammer home that I said prophetic, not pathetic. Um, with the performances, it starts at the top for me with Andy Griffith. Uh, it's literally like we've never seen him before. It kind of reminds me of like Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood, which I mentioned before. Not to that level of greatness, but just this one singular performance being so strong in my opinion so powerful it's the thing that sticks out above everything for me uh, and he uh, does he does have the subtleties in the performances the quieter moments like i mentioned the, the valleys to his peaks and i love that he's this unstoppable force he literally does call himself a force and i love watching him conduct an audience like an orchestra i also love patricia neal her performance is a lot more subtle under until the end and where she uh, she's begging for her freedom uh, she's strong while kind of playing to playing it like an abusive uh, an abuse victim. Uh, she's not just some one-dimensional female character that we've seen in so many movies of the 40s and uh, even in the 50s. She's in charge of her own destiny, but unfortunately, she has one weakness, which is Rhodes. Uh, she's probably uh, she probably would have made a great Lois Lane back in back around that time. Uh, I don't know how much you know about Lois Lane, but. Uh, we can talk about that another time. I think this movie uh, has just enough Walter Matthau. I think if they had too much, or if they had any more, then be too much. And uh, his scenes add just enough. Like I said, it adds that like punch at the end, uh, especially his final monologue. And then we have uh, the cautionary. The other thing about this movie, the prophetic, it's kind of a cautionary tale about media and the and image and politicians and the ignorance of the public. I'm sure there was an intention to vilify television, as I said, as it was uh, on the rise and taking away movie sales, movie tickets. Uh, In retrospect, it's about advertising, advertising drugs, politicians, a way of life. Uh, It's kind of insane, the parallels with Trump and his followers. The only difference is that he didn't really need to make excuses for himself because his followers made the excuses excuses themselves. He takes no accountability for any of his actions. No, of course. Like, ever. At least in this, he shows a little bit of remorse, at least towards Patricia. Mm-hmm. For yeah. Trump, it's like, literally, he can do no wrong. It's always someone else's fault. He did it better. He did it the best. Yeah. I put down, he could punt a baby across Lambeau Field and people would still love him. And support him. Yeah. Uh, it's scary how accurate this movie is to how things work and sad that this sort of thing still works as far as uh, being able to manipulate the public. But now instead of a 30-year-old 30, 30 Southern man telling people what to buy, it's a 20-something-year-old woman on Instagram. 
uh, I had second thoughts about watching this movie again so close, so soon, but immediately I was happy I brought this movie in for the podcast. My final score is 9.0. Why don't you just say 9? Because it's fun. <laughs> Why don't you just give it a more round number than, you know. There's a reason that it has a point something, <laughs> but you just said 9.0. Yeah. 9. That's a 9. A 9. Yeah. So what did you think of the movie and the... Uh, end it with would you recommend and what your score is all in all i definitely enjoyed this movie the acting specifically from patricia neal was absolutely top notch Um, watching the rise and fall of lonesome was very engrossing satisfying and somewhat sad even though he was an asshole and deserved what happened to him in the end i think jake tapper summed it up best Uh, this is a quote from him a face in the crowd paints an unflattering portrait of the viewing public's gullibility and distractibility but it held hope that the american people could be made to see through a figure like lonesome roads kazan recognized his mistake in retrospect in the age of mass media a skilled demagogue like Rhodes can rise to great heights and defy any easy moral arc as long as the public continues to sit back and enjoy the show in a 1958 letter to Schulberg, Kazan wrote, quote, We conceive facing the crowd as a warning to the American people. To that end, they made Lonesome Roads play the heavy and take the fall, letting the rest of us off the hook. We should have been showing us that um, Lonesome Road was us. Um, as I stated before, the movie's themes, plot points, and issues it addresses are still present in our media and our politics today. Um, this is a searing satire that I enjoyed um, surprisingly a lot more than i thought it would uh i'll give it a final score of an 8.03 out of 10 (laughs) would i recommend it uh yes i would i think anybody even remotely interested in politics or the media and how fucked up all of that is um it's interesting to see the parallels Mm -hmm. and again like you said how prophetic it is um because there's so many similarities to uh not even just like political from dickhead trump but um (laughs) tell us how you really feel (laughs) yeah but from um the whole instagram like Mm -hmm. you know modeling tiktok advertising selling stuff that they don't really believe in just like selling a product because you're a pretty face kind of thing um it's extremely prophetic and i really appreciated that aspect of it i mean we kind of mentioned it a little bit with uh betty lou that she is the Instagram model over time. And she, I mean, there's so many young women that feel the need to show off their, their body in order to get followers and likes, and then eventually go getting money. And that's, that's her right there. So that's another thing that's super prophetic. So it's pretty, pretty insane to think about. Uh, do you have, Oh, um, do you have anything else to say about the movie specifically before we get into trivia and all that? No, not specifically. Uh, do you have trivia? I do. Just a couple. Okay. Um, there's a lot of trivia on it, but a lot of it is like, this person's first movie, like, yeah. no one's going to know who these people are. I didn't know who they were, so I, I doubt you would care. Um, I always care. No, <laughs> I'm talking to our one listener. <laughs> That's true. Um, the Vitajex tablets that Lonesome Road's Hawks, Lonesome Road Hawks, Uh, meaning tries to sell to the people have six grains of dextrose five grains of inert material 2.5 grains of caffeine and 3.5 grains of aspirin that's roughly equivalent to a 16 ounce cafe latte and two baby aspirin tablets so in case you're wondering so yeah no that's that's a lot more that's a lot of caffeine kind of yeah um 
Another one in the making of documentary on the 2005 DVD release of the film, Andy Griffith says that the inspiration for the way that Marsha reveals Rose's hypocrisy by broadcasting his true feelings about his audience after he believes the sound has been cut off came from the famed, quote, Uncle Don incident in which, quote, Uncle Don Carney, a longtime children's radio host, was supposed to have been broadcast saying, there, that ought to hold the little bastards into a live microphone after he thought it had already been turned off. One lesson an announcer learns is to make sure he is off the air before he makes any private comments. But even the greatest sometimes slip. A legend is Uncle Don's remark after he had closed his famous children's program. Let's turn back the clock. Good night, little friends, good night. I'll tune in again tomorrow at the same time when I'll be back with all my little friends. We're off. I get that old little bastard Griffith recounted the story as fact, even though it is believed by most broadcasting historians to be nothing more than a widespread and very popular urban legend. So whether or not that's true, that actually mm. happened, but obviously that's where the Simpsons got yeah. the Gabbo thing from. Um even down to the that should hold the little bastards they say hold the little sobs yeah which is funny oh it makes me sad that it wasn't from this movie but man yeah. who knows it could it could have been in stage when he's on stage andy griffith noted that he would work gradually up to his most intense moments but needed to conjure up that spontaneously when shooting such scenes for elia kazan in some instances he asked to have a few discarded chairs available to destroy in order to work up his rage before filming jesus yeah that's method right there. Yeah, that is that is definitely method. Um, and then the last interesting tidbit is that Marlon Brando actually turned down the role of Lonesome Roads. I don't... I don't see him yeah, doing this. I don't see him either. I don't see him as charismatic and like... Well, I mean, the whole Southern aspect yeah. of it, I don't see Brando doing. And, I mean, he... Brando's infamous for having cue cards everywhere. And even, like, in Superman the movie, the uh, Kal-El Superman baby had his lines on his diaper yeah so uh same with the godfather he had yeah. him, like taped everywhere people holding up cue cards i mean he's a great actor don't get me wrong but i don't think he could do this strong of a performance he's great and on the waterfront and, and with the, the godfather. monologues but yeah just i mean he has one of the most famous monologues of all time in movie history with the uh, could have been a contender yeah but uh, yeah no i couldn't see him doing this and it makes me sad to see i mean I enjoyed the Andy Griffith show as a kid, and I'm sure millions have enjoyed it over the years, especially when it was on, and same with Matlock. But it makes me sad to see that he wasn't able to get more more roles like this. Mm-hmm. And just, just, you know, who knows what, what would have happened with him. So, I mean, I could have looked up who else was nominated in 1957 for performances. Maybe, uh, maybe he would have lost still to, like, Henry Fonda in 12 Angry Men or whoever won that year. But uh, I mean, there are. I would say that's probably a better performance. But there's a lot of great performances that year. He should have at least been nominated. So, which makes me sad because I guess nobody saw it. So yeah, it was not a commercial success. Yeah. So now, are you, is that are you good with trivia? Yeah, I'm good with trivia. So I got a one star review here. It's the only one star review I can find. Uh, it's I on. guess something to the extent of boring. Um. Well, the the headline is they meant well. Okay. This is from uh, April of 2000 with the username Pepsi. So, yes, it was a good mess or yes, it has a good message. But this kind of message, the no subtlety kind, is best delivered by Western Union. 
He said that with an exclamation point, so I sure probably shouted that. A more complex central performance might have put it over the put it over, but Andy Griffith is the wrong man for the job. Not once in the movie could I see why the character became such a big star. Not once. It's like this person's totally ignorant <laughs> to how oh, things go. Yeah, that was, that was probably Pepsi, like the company that wrote that, because they don't. Because they had Coca Cola at the end of the movie. They're like, exactly. Fuck this one. <laughs> That's funny. I didn't even think about that. Um, so yeah, I couldn't find any other reviews. We've talked about reviews. The the one you read about it, uh, which I think suffices. I think anybody else is just going to talk about how basically what we've been saying mm-hmm. about the whole movie about the performances and i think the, we've done a pretty deep dive on this movie oh yeah so. for sure um so let's talk about things that we've we've seen in the last week um honestly nothing that's i've watched enough for the both of yeah. us then because i've watched a lot of movies including uh, the police story trilogy jackie, Star- chan. jackie chan he did actually directed the first two i didn't know realize that has some of the greatest fight choreography and stunts like all across all, all three movies, yeah. but especially the first one, I was surprised how much I enjoyed the first one in comparison to the third one. Because the third one gets uh, Super Cop is the uh, the actual title, but it's Police Story Three Super Cop. It uh, gets the most buzz, but I mean, it's still great. But all three of them are. I think the first one is probably my favorite, and uh, I'm letting you borrow it. Yeah, I'm uh, excited to see it. Yeah, so there was Police Story that came out in '85, and Police Story Two came out in '88. All three movies are very 80s um, action action movie, especially the second one, because there are a lot more explosions. Uh, there's a whole subplot about dynamite, so there are a lot more explosions, and he even like turns in his badge and gun at oh, one point to his uh, that captain. Old, that old trope. <laughs> then uh, uh, Police Story 3, Super Cop, came out in 92. And there's Crime Story, uh, 93. There's Super Cop 2, which doesn't have Jackie Chan, but it, Michelle Yeoh, who was in uh, Super Cop, and she was great. She got her own spinoff uh, in 93, which is just a year later. I didn't realize that Jackie Chan's first strike was Police Story 4 from 96. Uh, and it's the first of uh, these to be made partially in English because they're all dubbed. I would recommend watching them dubbed because it adds a little bit to the humor of the bad dubs, especially the guy who's playing Jackie Chan because it's not Jackie Chan's voice. Uh, then there's New Police Story from 2004, which is a reboot. But then they rebooted it again in 2013 police story lockdown jesus i also watched kiss kiss bang bang finally i've owned it forever fuck that was on my list for you well yeah sorry uh <laughs> well, it doesn't mean we can't talk about it in the future sure um no i i really enjoyed it um and i see what you and your brother were talking about with the shane black told me like 10 times to like bring it up and i'm like eh, i've got other stuff on the list but it's definitely on my list for you you messed up i know I saw the uh, Orson Welles movie, Mr. Arcardin, which uh, is in Christopher Nolan's top 10 movies, or Criterion movies, so I watched it based on that, and uh, there are several versions of the movie. I saw the Corinth version, but there's also like the Confidential Report version, Public Domain version, Spanish version, <laughs> yeah, I don't Interesting. understand. I, I just searched which one's the best, and someone's like, Corinth. I was like, okay, I'll watch that version. It was, it was decent. I also watched Sonic the Hedgehog 2 because I saw the first one and I loved the games growing up. Uh, and then I also watched the first three episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Jesus Christ. Because uh, that's what I was hoping episode three would be. And I really enjoyed it. And I saw the first episode of The Offer about making The uh, the Godfather. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's on Paramount, right? Yeah. How was that? It's good. I, I enjoyed it. Um, 
some good performances. I definitely am going to go back and continue continue to watch it. Um, I saw a little like preview clip where they went to Marlon Brando's house and the guy who is playing Marlon Brando. It's mm-hmm. like I haven't gotten that far yet. Good. That's cool. It's I'm really excited. Good. The guy who plays uh, Coppola, um, Dan Fogler. Fulger. Oh my gosh. You guys know what his name is, I'm sure. He's in the Fantastic Beasts movie. I don't. If you saw him, you'd probably recognize him. But uh, he's great as Coppola. And, uh, of course, Miles Teller. And Matthew Good, who is in Watchmen. He uh, plays a producer whose name I forget. Who? Yeah. Ruddy? Yeah. So, uh, no, no, no. Ruddy is uh, Miles Teller's character. Oh. He plays, like, the studio head. Okay. So... Uh, yeah, so I'm definitely excited to go back into that and watch more. So, but that's the long list of things I've seen. So, what happens when you have to go to work super late? So. Yeah, wow. That's so impressive, I must say. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so now you have homework for me. Yes. Um, so I will say that next week we might be having a, a guest on, a mm-hmm. friend of the show a friend and fan of the show uh, coming on to do his top 10. Um, If that doesn't work out for whatever reason or the week after that, um, I have a film. You seem too confident. (laughs) No. Okay. Here's the thing. I'm, I don't know if you've seen this movie and I'm very interested to know if you have. And if you haven't seen it, then I like very interested to see in what you think of it. I'm Uh, interested to see what we'll do if I've seen it before. I guess we'll just, power on through yeah. and just do it um so i wrote a little little something something about it um in the world of cinema there have been a few occasions where a film has both been reviled and heralded regarded as disgusting horrific unwatchable and also as a masterpiece a must-see in a work of art very few films have had the wide range of these polarizing opinions more than one uh, which is going to be the topic of our next episode 2002 gaspar noise brutal unflinch- unflinching french revenge thriller irreversible i was waiting for, i was waiting for that to be on the list yeah because <laughs> that was like the third movie that you were like you should definitely watch this i was like okay so you have not seen it yet no i haven't seen it okay. um i was reluctant because the ultraviolence i like yeah. how uh, now we've gotten to 2002 so we've done 98 99 2000 2001 and we're gonna do 2002 yeah. Um, so I will say there will be a trigger warning, uh, attached to that episode because there are some very, very, um, graphic scenes in that movie. Uh, Rick, if you're listening, don't watch that movie. <laughs> yeah. So if you are following this episode and you want to watch the, the sh- watch the movie before the episode comes out, um, please be aware of what you're getting yourself into. This movie is definitely not for everybody. What's it rated? Is it's it NC-17? It's, well. Yeah, it doesn't have a rating on it. Um, I don't want to say too much about it, but just know that it's extremely graphic yeah. in, multi- right. in multiple ways. Um, and we can discuss why I... Obviously, we're going to discuss why yeah. I suggested this movie to you. Um I can't find it anywhere. I don't own it. It's available. That's the thing that I was looking at. It's mm-hmm. available on like a lot of the free things. Yeah. Just make sure that you're watching the correct version of it, like the mm-hmm. unrated version. Okay. I don't, uh, I don't know if there's a rated version or not, but um, make sure that you're watching the unrated version. Um, it says not rated on IMDb. Um, they will typically tell us the different run times if there are different versions yeah. of it. Every version that I've seen, because they re-released it in like what's um, there's like a new cut called the straight cut. Because 
this movie is actually told in reverse chronological order um spoilers yeah well no (laughs) you find out yeah that's a 90 minute cut yeah uh, the straight cut and then there's the inversion in in the grade i don't know it's french and then there's the canadian toronto international version which is the longest one at 99 minutes and but the basic version is 97 minutes yeah i'm sure all all of them would uh be sufficient enough that sounds about right um so yes that will be the topic of our next episode and you do not have any history of epilepsy do you no okay (laughs) good and if you're listening and you want to watch it it and please be aware that there are a lot of sequences of bright flashing lights so just be aware of that um but yeah that's it that's it that's all we made it through this episode it's only in the morning just for decoration (laughs) all right so uh thanks for listening uh feel free to leave us a review wherever you'd like uh if you want to send us an actual review to read of or like your opinion of any of the movies we've talked about so far especially our divisive episode last week definitely go check that one out if you haven't of the way of the gun that's kind of a spoiler for the episode but you know we've we've talked about that how it's divisive um so if you haven't listened to that definitely check it out check out all the episodes and uh, i'm just rambling now so leave us a review you can email us at cinephiliapod at gmail.com uh, on apple Podcasts. you can leave a review there for the podcast itself uh, if you have suggestions for movies you'd like us to uh, watch, we can definitely take those into consideration. You can also uh, follow us on Instagram at Cinephilia Podcast. Uh, we're also on Twitter and TikTok at Cinephilia Pod. We're on Letterboxd. If uh, that's the kind of thing you're into, you can uh, follow us. I'm E-Y-E-O-P-E-N-I-N-G-E-X-P, which is also my um, my handle on pretty much everything. I-Opening E-X-P. Yeah, so I-Opening Experience. And you are... Um, as the sunsets, all one word. So yeah, check us out uh, on the the social medias, and uh, thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, we'll see you next week. We won't see you at all. We won't see you at all. Maybe we'll do a live show someday if yeah. we're famous enough. But exactly. you got to do that. You got to do the leg where can make us famous. Yeah. Um, and if you can, <laughs> if you don't have the ability to write a review, if you can just give us five stars on whatever um, service you're using to listen to, we would greatly appreciate it. For sure. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you soon, not see you soon. Yeah, that's better. All right. Um, thank you, guys. Have a great day. We love you. Happy holiday, jelly Christmas. That's what I thought you were going to say. Bye. Bye. Gonna be a free man in the morning. Free man in the morning. Free man in the morning. Oh, no, the reason why. Gonna be a free man in the morning. I like to have your money, but I'd rather have my pride. Your butt is mine.